Hello there! You're listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for They Look Like People. My name is Tom Chick, and I am here to discuss that movie with Christian Marsklatsky. It's it's me, Christian. Stop. (laughs) It was really weird hearing that in the movie. Anyway, also with a tagline for They Look Like People, Kelly Wand. It's like they live, but with a longer title. Keep running with it, Kelly Wand. Yeah, I know you got more. I'm running, going for the end zone. It's right. not paranoia if you're solipsistic. Mm, I like the first one better. <laughs> what else you got? So that's why they call them dragon ladies. I'm uncomfortable with that one. Mm. What? It's medieval. You're medieval. Uh, Do you have a fourth I, or just the three? Um, <clears throat> that movie is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that should be on a poster. I can make one up right now, though, if you want, if those four aren't enough for you. Oh, I think you did quite well. Maybe uh, this movie is interesting. Can I, I just think? If it says that movie's interesting on a poster, does it imply you're looking – it's talking about another poster that you're, that's nearby and not the one you're looking at? You know, I've never been involved in the marketing of a movie, so I'm not entirely sure how that works. I don't look at posters before I go in because it's a spoiler. I didn't look at the Star Wars poster before we, we went in, by the way, because that sort of Drew Kurtz style of, hey, it's just sequences – like scenes from the movie pasted together and you know, you look in a corner. The Gods of Egypt poster, same way, by the way. Don't watch it because there's spoilers in the Gods of Egypt poster. Really? Yeah. It's that same Drew Kurtz thing. It's like, hey, we're just going to show you bits and pieces of the movie stuck together. I didn't know there'd be a pyramid in this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Kelly Wand, which one of us would win if Dingus subjected us to a quiz? You. Interesting. Let's see if that bears out. Dingus, give us a quiz. All right. This, is in, this is in both of your wheelhouses. Ooh. Or Will Highs, the Will Highs? I don't know what it is. All right, here you go. <laughs> what do you, so do you, oh, are there rules, or are you just doing a, synop- a plot synopsis? I'm just doing a plot synopsis, and you guys are going to have no, to. You're going to have to snap to it. Whoever I hear first, it's going to go. There's fast. no rules to pluralizing. All right. Um. Yeah, it, it's kind of like Outback Statehouse. No rules, pluralize. Here we go. Ready? Here we go. <laughs> Remember when Dingus said that thing about putting a condom on his leg and he thought we would know what he was yeah, talking about? Yeah, I like it because everything's like it. <laughs> I still haven't figured that one out, Kelly Wand. No, I don't get this one either for what it's worth. I don't know what the Outback Steakhouse commercial is. It could time. be part of the quiz, just so you know. Or it could mean nothing. It could mean absolutely nothing. Kelly Wand, why don't you put a condom on your leg and call it a day? Oh, I'd rather go to the Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> I mean the Outback Steakhouse I. All right. All right. So now that you want both of us to lose, we just yeah. want it to be equal opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually wanted this to go quickly, but you guys dragged it out. 
Yeah, there's more where that came from. I'm sure there is, sister. All right, here we go. <laughs> I, did, I did get that one. It was pretty obscure, though. All right. I am now about to start. Okay, What's start that? happily. <laughs> All right, I got that. I'm one for five. Is that part of the quiz? All right, guys. Did you know the that next- guy? That guy Craig from uh, Parks and Rec. Um, Craig? Wasn't that his name? He, Kelly, I'm not talking to you. Uh, the actor, the, the real tall, strident fellow who was always upset about something. You know who I'm talking about, Dingus? Oh, yeah, yeah. The the guy from Eagleton who's, da, who's um, uh, read as, like, uh, Doppel. Right. Exactly. Right, right. Uh, he has a really good part in Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising. Oh, wait. There was one scene in Neighbors 2 I thought was funny. I actually laughed several times. <laughs> the bag of dicks thing. That was funny. Yeah, I, Zac Efron did a great. Zac Efron, he's, he's like just a likable character. Yeah, Wait, yeah it's a it's bag funny. of dicks jokes. A bag of dicks joke is a Louis C.K. joke. Uh, it's not that though. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's actually great. I hated that moment until Zac Efron rescued it with the bag of dicks. Yeah, he has this great sort of lovable, like mm-hmm. dumb Bradley Cooper quality to him. He um, was funny. Yeah, and I guess that that is not a good actress. I'm telling you guys, you crazy. Not a good actress? Chloe, she's not good. I don't think she was in this. Interesting. Yeah, she was, was a great her. actress. I I think her career has been a bit mismanaged. I don't think she was acting. So. I'm going with what Dingus said. <sighs> All right. It, it was embarrassing watching her in this. I don't know. She's one for fifty. <laughs> Shut up. That's not fair. It might be an actor, but it's not fair. Yeah. I All do right. love your your quote for the poster, though, Tom. I laughed a few times. <laughs> Poor man's Cody Smith McPhee. Oh, oh my Ooh. God! That's, Kelly Wan, that's beyond the pale. Dingus, give us a quiz so I can kick Kelly Wan's ass. Uh, right, here we go. Here's the storyline of the movie. Nada, a down-on-his-luck construction worker, discovers a pair of special sunglasses. They live. Uh, that's bullshit. Come on. Ass. I kicked your ass. I actually knew it was from the very first word because I know Rowdy Roddy Piper's name is Nada. I couldn't believe that somebody was named Nada, and when Kelly Wand gave his first tagline, I was like, God darn it. I actually had no, no idea his name was Nada. Like, N-A-D-A, the Spanish word for nothing? Yeah, his name is Nada. Man, I don't remember that at all. That's that's crazy. That's the, what, so that's – I'm trying to figure out why it's that. What's David Keith's name, or Keith David? <laughs> <laughs> I knew uh, – His name is very – it's something very strange. It's Frank. <laughs> Frank and Nada, the adventures of. Yep, Frank and Nada. Does Frank die in that movie? Does Keith David make it out? I, that movie I've actually never or... seen They Live. You're not missing anything. Oh, what? Yep. No, that fight's awesome. No, it's after John Carpenter sort of fell apart. Yeah, but it's got the, that fight's hilarious. No, the fight is not awesome. He's... The fight is stupid. The fight is for people who like wrestling. But there's no, another. It's funny because... They're trying to not break the sunglasses, even though in, if Keith David was in character, he'd be going, here's what I think your stupid sunglasses. There are, there, are, there are ten, at least there are a dozen moments in Neighbors 2, Sorority Rising that are funnier than that fight in They Live. <laughs> All right, that's your zone. <laughs> There's a Keith just, David reason I chose this movie. I'm just telling you guys. Oh. Anyway, uh, wearing them, he's able to see the world as it really is. People being bombarded by media and government with messages like, stay asleep, no imagination, submit to authority. 
The message is just sleep, so it's not just you don't need to stay asleep. God. Oh God, God. Right. Anyway, uh, they live. You you kind of uh you preempted me, Kelly. But Tom still wins. Yeah, but I still won, so that's yeah. all that counts. Well, Moving I on. said it first tagline, so I won, and I said it first. You know Ooh. what else counts? Is, is you what precogged mo- it. What movie did we see this week, Ming, is that counts towards this conversation? What, what's <laughs> going to be relevant for the rest of this podcast? <laughs> this week we saw <laughs> They Look Like People, mm. a 2016 psychological horror movie. Mm. All right, psychological thriller movie. Uh, no, no. What? He's, he's, a 2016 movie about the lengths a dude must go to to get the back of his neck shaved. Mm, even it then, was nope. directed and written by Perry Blackshear and stars McLeod Andrews. You sure you didn't get that backwards? Uh, Andrews McLeod. <laughs> Sorry, he was on the love boat. It's McLeod Andrews, Evan Doom Ochel. Come on, Dingus. Tap in your inner Frenchman and give that another shot. Evan Dumachel and uh, Margaret Ying Drake. Ooh. They uh. Look Like People has not been rated by the MPAA. Ah. Uh. I wonder if there's someone on this podcast who could maybe help us with that. I certainly hope so. Mm, not me, Dingus. Could you do it, maybe? Mm, no, I have nothing. I don't, I don't even know what this thing was about. What if someone in this podcast had to give it an MPAA reading? Kelly Wan, do you think maybe you could help the MPAA with that? Yeah, I was born to be in the MPAA. I keep telling them that. <laughs> so what would you give this movie, and for what reasons? Uh, Like Matrix porn. Uh, ratings uh, for the MPAA, I would give They Look Like People include Exotic Asian Eyes, Double dating and thunder. <laughs> uh, they look like people didn't make any money at the box office because it never got released mm. there. No theatrical yeah. release. You know why? Because it wasn't rated, Tom. If, if the MPA rates it, it makes money. Ah, right. Good point. No rating, no money. Uh, also, no Metacritic rating because it only has two reviews on Metacritic. So Metacritic doesn't three. do an average until it gets uh, four reviews. However – Really? On Rotten Tomatoes, there are actually eight reviews, so at least six of those aren't allowed on Metacritic. Uh, Why? Those eight re- Metacritic has, I think, stricter standards for who they include in the aggregate than Rotten Tomatoes. We are Metacritic, not Rotten Tomatoes. You on Rotten Tomatoes, ass. however, the eight reviews of those, 88% are positive. Huh. You do the math. <laughs> uh, Kelly Wand, I would like you to give us a they look like popsis. Oh, but good. One Tom. would call the they, they look like people synopsis. Dude, Doom's really cranked up your skills. The movie with with Dwayne Johnson, I, I agree. Yeah. Oh, you mean Judge Dredd, the best uh, of the Dreads? Your favorite? <laughs> he was such a dick, Before to you... Nina Hetty. That's why you don't like that movie. I think he doesn't like it because he doesn't like siege movies. Not a siege. <laughs> and Dingus, after what we have seen that Kelly hasn't seen, you should know what a siege movie is. Oh. Judge, uh, not that. Sick burn. Silicon Valley? Nope, that reference was not for you, Kelly Wand. Not uh, for the listeners, by the way. Wow. It's a spoiler. What? Yeah. The, you're welcome, listeners. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll say more things, more inside jokes later. <laughs> for your entertainment. Uh, they look like popsists. One night, a bearded person doesn't turn on his light. 
some words are all, they look like Popsis. A lumpier Mark Duplass guy is listening to an audio tape of his ex-girlfriend. She's all. How to ask out your Asian boss. Step one, get a job where you have an Asian boss. Step two, cop a field during her judo lesson. That's why it was invented. He walks down a street and sees his bearded friend, White. White's all. Hey, man, I thought you might walk down the street eventually. Mark's all. Just for that, you're staying with me. They go to Mark's place. Mark saw, and here's the basement to my apartment. I've been down here since my movie podcast. White saw, it's creepy. Can I sleep here? Mark saw, speaking of which, come check out my kitchen. Later, while Mark talks into a phone, your girlfriend has a bloody what? Uh, uh, yeah, still interested. Uh, see you in a scene. Oh, that was that Asian girl I'm into. I'm pretty sure she's into me also, since she's bringing along a stupid friend who tripped over ice. Now she needs me to bring different ice to put on her tongue. Wow, that sounds fun. Um, you didn't hang up by shit. Hello? Hey, you see you in a bit. Okay. Bye. By the way, I might bring my mentally troubled friend. He hangs up. Listen, you should come on my date with me. Jesus Christ. We can pretend it's like old times. White's all. Now you go ahead. I was just going to stay and stare at the wall, work on my noose, rename my Stellaris fleets, but okay, I'll come. Awesome. But first there's something I need you to do later. There you go. Now your back's 10% hair-free. Sorry for all the cuts, though. Duplass is all. Oh, that wasn't what I wanted you to shave. Later. <laughs> wow, what a great parking lot, huh, girls? White, isn't this parking lot romantic? Yeah, the darkness hides what lurks behind the so-called facade of normality. My nail gun shall be ready for their souls. Amen. The Asian girl's all. Hmm. Okay, well, good night. She sticks her hand out. Mark stares at it and goes, why would I want to kiss your hand that night? Bearded character, we warned you to stay out of cities, cell phone reception notwithstanding. Demons are taking over. They taste like people. But unlike people, you can kill them by pouring sulfuric acid on their faces and also by shooting them with nail guns. Oh, yeah? That all sounds good on paper, but how do I know I'm not crazy? Because crazy people get imaginary callers and emails. Oh, so I should get a computer? Jesus, look, just get the acid and the nail gun and a hammer in case the nail gun breaks and you still want to nail something. Also, you'll know it's time to start pouring sulfur on people when you hear three thunders. If you hear four, it just means it's raining. Also, I'm a character in the movie. It's still a little early to divide. Let's not do these in the morning anymore. Let's just figure a way out to transcend gravity <sighs> the next day <laughs> doing Kelly wants, you you always transcend it doesn't matter what time of day you transcend oh thank you you just you're a nice person that's all true we story, learned true story. the next day Okay, mister, so that's three sacks of sulfuric acid, one nail gun, one noose, one sprig of hemlock, one stack of stationery with suicide note letterhead, one guillotine, one other guillotine, one shovel, one tombstone, one coffin, one Sith, and one DVD copy of The Grey. Ugh. Looks like you're planting some skiing. <laughs> Need the directions on how to use the stationery? No, I get it. Just stand still. Hey, does sulfuric acid hurt if you pour it on your friend's face? How the hell should I know? I look like a chef? Meanwhile, what were you saying through the soundproof door? I couldn't hear you. I said I'm whispering. What? Never mind. Here, since we're in a sound booth, let me show you some judo. 
What the? Oh, it's fine. <laughs> now let's find a parking lot, and I'll show you my other skill later in a parking lot. And this line says you're a loser, and this line's your urethra. Yeah, great. I knew the first one already. Wait, why didn't you read my palm in the sound booth and do the judo here? That reminds me, I'm going to put in the good word for you with our bosses. Don't worry, they really respect my opinion. Meanwhile, thanks for coming to see me, Dr. Shrinker. Uh, shouldn't we have met in your office instead of by this deserted lake like we're CIA agents or something? <laughs> you let me worry about what's best for the desert, young man. Now let me see your palm. Hmm. This line says, yeah, you're fucking nuts. Here, I'm going to write you a prescription for sulfuric acid. Be sure to take it on lots of bread. As the physician scribbles, he looks away. Flies buzz around his head and his skull splits open. He hands white a blank business card and goes, here, just pretend this is a prescription. Thought you already had my number, actually. You called me. I think I'm losing it. You wouldn't happen to know a therapist, would you? As White leaves the park, he sets the doctor's card carefully aside in a box for future reference. Meanwhile, on a train, Mark puts headphones on and hits a listen button on a Walkman. His ex-girlfriend's voice is all, You are a mountain, lumpy and covered in brambles. <laughs> you are a snowstorm, annoying and white. You are a superman, milk toast, and the son of Martha. By the way, I'm your ex-girlfriend. Or imaginary like your friend. He hits the stop listening button and goes, hmm. I look over at Jacob's ladder sitting beside me and go, it's not paranoia when you're just stoned. It slides off the chair and wakes up screaming in a garage. Meanwhile at Osh, okay, and that's uh, one nail gun and some Tic Tacs. And yes, this will hurt if you put it in your mouth. <laughs> Can't speak for the nail gun, though. What do I look like? Hey, how'd that sulfuric acid work out for you? My wife was asking. White's all, hang on, I have to take this. His phone rings. He picks it up and goes, hello? The Asian girl's all, it's me, the Asian girl. I'm the one who's been talking to you since the movie started. He's all, what? You told me to stay away from cities, but you live in New York and work at a sound booth store? She's all, look, I said you weren't crazy. I didn't say anything about me. Uh, pretend I said that like my other thing. She hangs up. The cashier's all, Asians, what are you going to do? By the way, I'm also one of your hallucinations. White stares at him for a second, then takes out his wallet to pay for the nail gun. The cashier's all, sorry, hallucinatory credit card only. Read the imaginary sign. Meanwhile, it marks work. Hey, uh, you, thanks for accepting my emoticons request for a meeting. Here, I wrote you a poem about how awesome things have been going between us. <clears throat> The night we first met, your klutzy friend fell on the ice. My friend thought about helping her up. That was nice. When you read my palm, I knew it was kismet. But later during judo, I think I got my whiz wet. Is this love I feel coming from your skirt or just a promotion? Either way, I brought the lotion. I call it untitled. So who's buying victory dinner tonight? She's all, you're fired. Get out. Also, I need your key card. Also, I hope this won't affect. No, no, I'm totally still interested in you sexually. I mean, I can't promise marriage or anything, but here's a ring. I was going to say, I hope it won't affect the Ramstein account, but the company thanks you for the ring. He's all, fuck. Later. Asian girl, what are you doing here at my apartment? She's all, first off, I just want to say I'm sorry about what happened in the recording booth. And I came by to say you're fired again. That's great. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't I leave you alone here with my mentally troubled friend and have him show you the murder basement while I go out and buy you a new ring? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's happening? <laughs>
later. Wow, if I'd known Mark had a basement this awesome, I'd have worn my hair up when I fired him. Debbie, listen to me. I know you're one of them, the other them. The angels are here to deliver us from the fly people. Look, I got the sulfuric acid, like you said, and here's my nail gun. I also had a little something extra here, something I invented myself called knife taped under the table. Don't worry, when I showed it to Mark, I told him it had nothing to do with you. Also, in case you were to infected, look, here's my penis. Hey, where are you going? Minutes later. Hey, everybody, I'm back. Oh, what happened to, uh... Dude, she got really weird and took off. You must have said something. But don't worry, I'll stalk her on her way home tomorrow and grab her arm and shatter her till she sees reason. The next day, here, sit down. Now that I just broke your nose, I feel a lot more comfortable around you. Listen, Sally, for whatever it's worth, I'm the only insane one. Mark doesn't even believe in sulfuric acid. Actually, I don't get why you're even interested in him. She's all, does this answer your question? Her head spins around, her mouth turns creepy, and her eyes go little orphan Annie. He's all, what question? <laughs> Minutes later. White, where you been? I've been looking all over the living room for you. Mark, listen, I know I've been acting playful, but now it's time to pack your bags into the car. We're going to live in the mountains for a while. I'll explain later. Mark's all, okay. While they're packing the car with empty boxes, White listens to the sky for a minute. Then he's all, shit. Okay, Mark, change of plans. I need to tie you to a chair in the basement, put a bag over your face, and possibly pour sulfur acid on you. In ten minutes, sharp. Mark saw. Okay. Minutes later. <laughs> Mark, we did it. I learned to doubt the evidence in my senses just in time. And by letting me tie you to this chair and wait for acid to be poured on you, you've conquered your fear of passivity. Now we can live together forever, just like the new voices coming from my phone want. Let's celebrate with a walk out to the car and then back down here and do it all again a few times just to make sure my watch isn't six minutes fast. Mark saw. Okay. Together they leave the basement and step outside. All the people they see have demon faces and Asian bodies. One demon mowing his lawn waves at them. The guy's all, hey, Kevin. <laughs> Mark's all, wow. I guess you had parts of reality, right? Sure hope this doesn't undo my breakthrough. I look over at Body Snatcher Sutherland sitting beside me and go, hey, uh, what do demons have for breakfast? Deviled eggs. Get the oak. Number of the yeast. Sutherland slowly opens his mouth, widens his eyes, points at me, and makes a shrill noise of mild irritation as we go tight on his terrifyingly pursed lips. The end. Thank you, Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, do you agree with me when I think, eh, I'm not sure this is for dingus? No, I think you'd like it. Okay. By the end. By the end, it would. Because it's about, uh, there's good. He can be fooled with acting, and the main guy looks a little like him. <laughs> well, he's named after him. Yeah, they have the same name. Yeah, there's other similarities. Lobby wars. <laughs> <laughs> Listen very uh, carefully. Do not fuck not Christian. Okay. Do not fuck Christian. <laughs> uh, Kelly, is it for you? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. It was great. It reminded me uh, of a movie called Head Trauma. Did you ever see that? It's I don't really... think I know that one. What is that? Um, it's this sort of. It's shot at an art house. Uh, or no, I saw it at a film festival. It's like a a recent some... thing or an old thing. It's, I, I was assuming it was something you saw in the eighties when you were a kid. No, it was like about ten years ago, and it was about a guy. It it I think it was shot on video even. But I've seen it on cable since, and it's like a what's happening kind of movie, and the main character moved to his old house, 
and he keeps having these uh, dreams of someone warning him there's someone in the basement. And then there's, I don't want to spoil it, but right. it has to, something happened in his past and you're not sure what's real. And what's... Head trauma, okay. Uh, the only reason I would recommend it to Ding is, uh, and I, I love this thing, although I don't, uh, I, I think you have to really be tolerant of, of indie movies and I just wonder how much you have to be into horror movies, even though I kind of don't, I think it's a horror movie, but I don't think it does what mm-hmm. most horror movies do. I, uh, I don't think it's a horror movie. But the the only reason I would I would recommend it to to you, Dingus, is because of my over is a movie that I know we both like that we'll touch on uh, in a little bit, uh, which I think is very similar to this in terms of what it's saying and not how it says it. And the wow. reason I would say this is a horror movie is because of how it says what it's saying. Horror movies are just a genre like like sci-fi or, or romances or comedies uh it's a way of telling a story and regardless of the story being told it can be a horror movie this is not telling the stories that most horror movies tell but it's definitely telling it like a horror movie in that genre oh, so yeah, for yeah. that reason yeah. i'd say it's a horror movie but what i, I love about I agree this with you on that i agree okay yeah. and what i, I, think what I love about the movie is how it defies expectations how Many, many times it could go in the direction of just a normal horror movie about a psycho killer and some violent thing he does. And throughout, it it resists that temptation and ultimately ends up being about something very different, which I think, Dingus, is why you feel it's not a horror movie because right. of what it's, it's ultimately about. So that said uh, – yep, go ahead. Well, just I think that's really endemic to its success is like the character's uncertainty about what he thinks is real has to do with like we're trained to go, oh, this is a horror movie, but we're not sure either what's real. So it's using our own knowledge of horror movies against us in a way to like to give to make us feel uncertain, I think, and expect jump scares. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's a lot of the the define of expectation, too. Yeah. uh, Jump scares and stuff we'll talk about with the effects in a moment. But so thing is, am I am I right as far as thinking, eh, maybe this isn't for you. It reminds me a lot of something that we love, but I'm not sure. I think there are probably about 12 movies you should see before you see this. So maybe down the line, see it, but you don't need to hurry. Is that a misreading or were you into it more than I thought you might be? What's your take on they look like people? Well, I don't really know how to answer the question of whether or not it's for me, um, because even if I don't like a movie, it doesn't mean it's not for me. Um, I didn't necessarily like this very much. Uh, there are things I really did like about it, and uh, uh, opposing to what Kelly Wan said, I actually liked the way it started more than I liked the way it ended. Um, I really loved that opening <laughs> shot, the opening sequence, and how it cuts before there's you, you it kind of defies your expectation you you expecting a jump scare at that moment um when he opens his eyes and he's like looking at her uh, or, or you know and then she and there's that weird like flip moment where she flips over and there's this this weird sort of time melding and then we go back to that later on and then you get the moment again where oh my god are we going to have that jump scare where the, the gaping maw is going to jump in and move. Well, it doesn't happen. So he, he constantly is very careful about doling these things out. But I think there's a difference between that and I, I think you can play your cards close to the vest and play them too close to the vest. Um, and this, this, for this, for me, this movie was way too much is you is your, or is you ain't for me. Um, uh, but, uh, I, I, that's not to say I don't think it's a good movie. I think it's a, I think it's very well made. Um, I, I just, you know, maybe it isn't for me. Um, I don't think it, it's just that I didn't 
ultimately like where it went. Um, but I think it's, See, it's fine. I'm surprised because uh, you usually like stuff where like the character goes all the way because of something they believe in. Like that usually does it for you. Although I guess in reality it would be um, someone's crazy enough to tie me to a chair. It's that I, I, to be quite frank with you, Kelly, I didn't believe where the where the two main characters wound up in the end of the movie. I didn't believe it. I didn't. I don't believe them in the basement. I don't believe him with the bag on his head. I, I don't believe that stuff. Um, I don't, and I certainly do not believe him not pouring the acid. I don't believe it. I don't believe, given the evidence of what the movie has set up as far as their characters are concerned, that that is where they end up. And it's not that the movie doesn't provide it. It's just that I didn't. I didn't follow it along. Um, and there's a number of reasons why that happens along the way, but there's a number of things I really did like about the movie, and that's why I say I think it's a good movie. It's just not one that I like very much. See, Kelly Wand? I win this one. I win huh. this one. Yeah, I'm surprised. That's such a nuance. I would have thought he would have been all in. Or- that's actually what I thought he would like, too. That was one of the reasons I might have recommended it. but Because uh, I love where it ends up, and that's part of... So when I first watched it's this, twist, uh, I, I well for me all I can think about is take shelter. I, I think that's kind of exactly that's it's exactly what it is, right? right. It's, uh, it's take shelter, but as a horror movie and as right. two men um, who have who are both suffering from uh, the repercussions of failed relationships, uh, discovering each other after ten years, right? Um, and, and kind of when I what I what I kept feeling was like this is about two guys who are afraid of women. Uh, that's kind of what I kept taking away from it, which was weird, and I don't want to take that away from it. But anyway, go ahead, Tom. Keep going. Oh well, that that I just thought the fact that it's uh, and and so I would I would take issue Dingus with not take issue, but uh, calling this a psychological thriller I think is a huge spoiler. Um, oh, all right. Because well, I, I, I I just took that off of Wikipedia. I mean, I, I could have just called it a movie. Oh, right. I mean, because, I, I didn't even think it was a horror movie, really. You know what? What you say the is you is or is you ain't. It's it's we're we're watching a movie with two narrators, one of whom is either unreliable or crazy, or the movie's going to give us a twist and tell us it's real. Like, I think there's a lot of not understanding what why its perspective means to mm-hmm. the objective reality of the movie. But mm-hmm. I, I think uh, as the movie goes on, and as you're wondering, well, why are they revealing these bits of information about Christian? Right. Uh, and you start to understand how similar they are and how they've both undergone similar situations and reacted in similar ways but handled it to different degrees. Uh, the movie is about building how much they have in common so that I feel it does earn that ending. Uh, yeah. I love right. that ending because of how it ends everything we've seen, how everything we've seen leads up to that. Um, when, when I first watched this movie, I just had it on while I was doing something else. Because uh, I love watching new horror movies, and it wasn't until the the scene with Mara, which totally creeped me out, partly because the movie hadn't done any stuff with special effects up to this point. Uh, so I I love that 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 it you know talk about playing things close to the vest. I didn't expect anything like that, so that freaked me the hell out. I stopped watching <laughs> the movie, and I was like, okay, that I need to see what was going on, like. I haven't been paying close enough attention, but whatever movie is going to spring that on me partway through in that manner, I need to get the setup for this. So I watched. You're talking it. about the the bleeding fingers and the eyes. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's, that's pretty late, but yeah. No, it's very late. I know. It's well, right. we've already seen the Christian. picture, and we've already in the, in the very beginning we've seen Christian have 
a similar view of the of the woman's mouth doing that thing. I mean, we have kind of already been played. Yeah. When? Yeah, when? When he's when he's lying next to her. I mean, they do it twice. That's not Christian. That's that's uh, that's Wyatt, and that's Hannah, his girlfriend. Oh, right. Well. And we don't see her mouth. We see the side of her her face. I mean, it could I be can't just see after, anything. I, and I only looked for it. It's because so I and then saw it a third time before we were doing the podcast. Um, oh, all right. So I posted a short review, but the opening is Wyatt sitting there looking at Hannah, his girlfriend, and the first time you don't see anything. The second time, and I was looking for this, you just see the side of her jaw move, and it could be the actress opening her mouth. Uh, uh, okay. But having seen it a third time, I realized this is Wyatt experiencing what he's going to experience with Mara later in the movie, this idea. And when he sees the photograph, too, uh, you know, that obviously they they obviously did some crazy Photoshop there. That was creepy. But I didn't expect that special effect to come up. Um, So I forgot where I was going for all this. But for me, the fact that all this is in, in the service of telling a story about two men who understand and trust each other to the degree Almost, and this is almost uncomfortable, the, the fact that Christian enables this weird fantasy that Wyatt has, it's uncomfortable and it's weird, but I think the movie clearly sets it up at a couple of moments with this idea of how far would you go to show your friend that you trust him, that yeah. he can trust you. Uh, and the fact that the movie ends without being a horror movie, without doing exactly what you expect it's going to do, which is repeat the crazy CG stuff that happens with Mara, uh, and it just ends with them hugging. Um, <laughs> and and I, I do feel like it, it, it the, the character building in this is just so strong, specifically with Christian, uh, that I really feel it, it just earns that point. And the fact that that's the point it reaches, I just really admire about it. Uh-huh. And they don't seem like guys who would be friends. So it makes you – it sort of works in a way because you go – for them to have been friends, they have to have been way different from how they are. Well, so it's, they become yeah. more similar as the movie goes on, and they both go through some shit. So the chronology is they haven't seen each other for 10 years. Right. And presumably, it is before they went off to college because when, when Wyatt is going through the boxes of stuff – I love this, and this is, I think, great storytelling. In the boxes – there's a Calvin and Hobbes book and some Magic the Gathering cards, right. which says what age they were when they knew each other. Mm-hmm. And there's furthermore that picture of Wyatt and Hannah who were away at college sending Christian the card. So presumably they knew each other up through maybe high school, then went to different colleges, haven't seen each other for 10 years. Uh, so I, I think that's the chronology. It's been 10 years, and in those intervening 10 years, uh, they've both had – basically failed engagements uh and in christian's case uh he lost a child somehow they don't say how or uh and he tried to commit suicide and they leave us to fill in the blanks and i love that about it uh and what that says about his connection and his understanding of wyatt you know wyatt is in the depths of some sort of psychosis right now and as christian realizes this you realize, too, well, if he was at a point where he tried to kill himself, he's obviously got some special understanding with this man who he was so close to when they, when they were boys. Right. So that's why I thought Dingus would like it. Right, exactly. Yeah, me too. That ending – because that – and that ending was just terrifying to me. Like I, I'm so – I'm just so sensitive to potential jump scares that I was sure something was going to happen. Uh, 
Well, it's shot like it too. Like it's, it's totally like, shot like it. The, like the, so everything, so much stuff that happens to Wyatt from Wyatt's perspective is unreliable and doesn't exist. The lights going out doesn't happen. You know, that's just Wyatt's yeah. imagination. Because uh, when he pulls the bag off, the, the lights are on. Um, you know, Wyatt's phone never rings. There's no light coming from the phone. Like he's just picking up a silent phone. The fly sounds, of course. I mean, we know. Uh, so you can't trust anything that's happening when when Wyatt is on screen. And when that weird thing happens to Mara's face, that's where, okay, well, this is definitely a horror movie. All bets are off. They're going to do some creepy, scary, freaky thing to me. Uh, you know, now is the climax of the movie, and now it's going to get crazy. And it doesn't. Instead, it <laughs> drives home this point about – you know, if something really scary were to happen to me, if something were really scary were to happen, would you would you stand by me? Which is what Wyatt asked him earlier in the movie. Yeah, and then afterwards, I kind of felt like, well, obviously it wasn't. It was going to go the way it does because there's no like, other than Maya's face, it's like the calls just sound like the kind of thing that a crazy person would hear, as oh, opposed yeah. to like deepening the lore of like, okay, this city's been taken and now this rule, right? Like instead of like sulfuric acid, hammer. <laughs> well, don't I trust I, anyone. I, I think the horror at that point, because he sees a psychologist. I mean, I don't. Right, right, right. I'm not sure you're ever supposed to believe that demons are really, really coming, but what you're supposed to believe is that this guy's going to murder someone. Yeah. And when he goes down in the basement with Mara, in a typical psycho killer movie, he would kill Mara. He would have to hide her body from Christian. Uh, later, Christian would find it. They would have a confrontation. He would fight Christian, and then Christian would have to kill him and be sad. You know, that's a stupid thriller yeah. uh, pattern. But since but since it's not a big since it's not a studio movie, you're not sure what's going to happen. Right. And not only is it not a studio movie, Perry Blackshears uh, wrote, directed, edited. And shot this movie. There were times when they were shooting. It was, it was just the three of them in, a, in an apartment building, in an apartment, uh, you know, with, with Perry Blackshear's doing the camera and with these two guys uh, acting. Uh, There's also, like in movies, it seems like characters are usually, they know fewer people than they really would in real life just for the necessity of screen time. Uh -huh. But in this, it kind of helps the movie that there's like, even for... Uh, what the movie's about, like there's not even any su supporting characters of any kind just because they're sort of closed off characters, so it sort of works. And they do oh. they do shots a couple of times of Christian at work, and there's random co-workers when he's having a meeting. Um, but never their Wyatt. faces, it isn't it? No, no, definitely their faces, yeah. And, and Wyatt on the, the subway, this guy trying to make eye contact with him. Yeah. Uh, but you definitely see other co-workers' faces during the, some of the work scenes. Um but you're, you're right. They don't. None of them are introduced as characters. Like this guy Gerald, who's the boss. You never see this guy. He never comes into it. Say any. Like I don't even know what Christian's job was supposed to be. Right. Uh, you know, it has his job. Job yeah. is clearly dominating because they said, "Great job dominating, asshole." Right. Uh, and I just thought it was so touching too. The moment when, like, he goes in for the the meeting, and he writes. On little cards, his affirmations that his girlfriend did for him. And you think they're notes. Like he's going to give a presentation at the meeting. Uh, and he just is going to sit there at the meeting and look at these affirmations while he's having the meeting because he's so insecure. Uh, I just love that yeah. little touch. And then he drops them and, and Mara sees them. Uh, he thinks he's the Jason Patrick character from Friends and Neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I definitely get that feeling too. Um, 
and, and the other thing I got was uh, from this movie, and, and there's something that Tom said, uh, and I can't remember which movie it was. Tom was talking about the theme of the movie being um, the futility of love, and I can't remember which movie that was. But uh, but I think it's the psychiatrist who says in this movie, did you ever have a long-term relationship that didn't wind up letting you down? Mm-hmm. And that immediately made me think of what Tom had said about – it might have been High Rise. I can't quite remember about the futility of love. Well, what, what, yeah, and, and the thing is, I don't, I think it's a little unfair to ding this as being a movie about guys afraid of women because what, why it immediately responds is, well, there's this friend of mine who I'm staying with. Like, that also implies, like, like, why it doesn't immediately think he's talking about romantic relationships. For whatever reason, you know, that applies to all of Wyatt's long-term relationships, and he has this final hope that maybe this guy who he's staying with, who's been super kind to him, who has insisted that he stay there. Because I think this movie easily could have been a movie if it hadn't have been the fact that Christian lost a wife, lost a baby, tried to kill himself. If it hadn't been for those things, he would have probably let Wyatt go out the door because Wyatt was ready to. Like Wyatt was super deferential about, no, nah, I'm staying with someone down the street. Um so I, I, yeah, and Christian makes goes out and makes the keys for him, and then hands him over. I mean, yeah, he's 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 very much, you know, aware of like y- you need to be with me. I mean, he's making he's making that clear. And, and and again, a little storytelling nod. Like at first, I thought this was kind of cheesy, but I think I ultimately admire it rather than other ways it could have been done. When you see Christian looking up uh, how to help a friend, you know, he's googling that, um, and there's a little thing about like mental health. He's looking mm. up. And and it like that's kind of a cheesy way to say okay he knows his friend is sick he knows there's something going on there he he has an understanding about this he cares enough to to read up on it and it's kind of set up in the goofy fact that this is a guy who looks up online how to date your boss because he has a yeah. crush on his boss he googles that and reads an article at work to, where you can see the URL at work and he's taken it's taken him 5 months to do this too like he says to Wyatt this is girl I've been trying to ask out for 5 months and he finally looks up online how to date your boss right. uh, yeah and of all the things to like how to ask out like just a girl or something it's like wait I like that's the first noun he would type in for her. and and I love the two of them together though i i think she for, First of all, I, oh my God, she's so freaking adorable, and she had this. She's got this like uh, Jennifer Tilly quality to her. Yeah. So endearing, and and Perry Blackshears does a great job of highlighting really naturalistic moments uh, between the two of them. Uh, at one point, when she's explaining that, like, she's talking about the Isaac Asimov books and that she loves Lord of the Rings, and they're just trying to set up that like she's a, a dorky girl to make her even more lovable, I guess. But then they cut to some bit of her saying, I don't even know what we're talking about. And she's like waving her hand. And it's just a supernaturalistic moment that obviously didn't flow from what she had just said. But then he puts in there. Uh, and and so the same with like some of the judo stuff, that weird whisper room encounter. Um, I uh, loved the cut away from that. Uh, what does she's been a behemoth for five months mean? Behemoth is the name of the company. She's been at behemoth. Oh, been at behemoth. All yeah. right. And she's been she's been promoted oh, she's been moved up twice. She's been yeah, okay. Yeah. So she's been. She, yeah. my, my favorite thing in the movie is, and I, I didn't really care for her that much as much as you did, but I do love that moment after the night at the hospital where they're trying to figure out, uh, you know, is he going to kiss her or not? 
Does yeah. she expect him to kiss her or not? Don't get any ideas. Is she going to <laughs> reject him or not? Then they kind of uh, insult each other a little bit, but it doesn't quite work. They're a little abrasive. That whole thing on the stairs going down to the subway where she said, we're just going to, we're just going to go home. Um, and they might kiss or they might not. The way she plays that is great. Yeah. And I like yeah, to go. Yeah. It also establishes, and I didn't catch this the first time, uh, Wyatt probably has medical training. Did you guys get that? Yeah, definitely with it, with that yeah. weird iPhone thing with look over here, look over there. Yeah, it's like doing a light to see if she's concussed and if her pupils are reacting. Right, uh, right, right, right. I, you know, I, I, wow, okay, so this guy does. You know, he's not just a guy who's been working as a handyman for nuns somewhere. Uh, at some point, he knows enough about how to look for a concussion. That nun stuff was funny, by the way. Uh, there's and there's even a, a great throwaway line about and this is where I first realized okay I want to pay closer attention to this movie when I was rewatching it uh, the girl who got hurt when they're saying do you want to call an ambulance and this is where Perry Blackshears is just capturing weird moments and putting him in there uh, she says I hate ambulances EMTs are perverts they smell like French fries they smell like French fries <laughs> what that the was hell so is that <laughs> so, so random they smell like French fries was so weird <laughs> how many does she know. <laughs> right, she's got some sort of history with uh, with yeah. Teas. That was such a weird moment. They smell like French fries. It's so weird. Uh, Dingus, did she you... hates that smell? So you're easily creeped out too. Like, did did the did the weird face thing freak you out, or you were just like, ah, oh, whatever? The weird face thing? You mean in the picture? Well, well, that that's also freaky. But I'm talking about uh, 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 Mara's face distorting. No, not really. I mean, yeah. by by then I was kind of in the okay, bleeding fingernails. We're in the, we're in another hallucination, or we're not. I'm just. I mean, I I I didn't. I honestly at that point, I just. It wasn't that I turned off. I honestly, I think this is a a well made movie. Uh, I just wasn't into what was going on, and knew that she was kind of going to do some sort of weird thing, and the filmmaker wasn't going to let us know one way or the other. He was just going to keep like playing out the cards. So you felt jerked around, and I didn't feel like, jerked around. I just felt like he was just going to keep playing out the string until the end, and and then he was going to either let me know or not at the very end. Well, let you know what or not? Like what? What? What do you think? You, what do you mean playing out? Like what? What was he not showing? You? Whether we're in Ten Cloverfield or not. I mean, he was going to either let us know that. There, this, that this thing is actually going on, or it's not actually going on. It, it felt like it was like I okay, I I now know that I have to wait till the last moment of this movie to find out if um, you know, they look like people is a an actual thing and it's going to be revealed, or if it's just going to be just psychological and that's going to be revealed. So I just have to wait for the choose your own. It's like reading the choose your own adventure book, but I have to wait till the last page to find out which adventure I'm reading or which and, genre you're reading. And and I and at at that point in the in the office where her fingernails are bleeding and her eyes go uh, white, it, I, I I wasn't creeped out by that because I I knew kind of what he was doing. He was he's he's just going to keep playing out the string until the end of the movie. But I also knew, given the fact of the the length of the movie I'm watching, it's like a, an hour and nineteen minutes. So. Um, we don't have a lot of time to do a lot of these things that are going to happen if they're going to happen. And if they're going to happen, it's not going to be a lot of stuff. I guess I, your whole, I, I felt a little, I felt a little let down by that. Your whole is he or ain't he thing. Cause I, I don't, I think it's pretty clear that Wyatt is sick. And my only, 
for me, the tension was, is Wyatt going to hurt one of them and not? And Uh, I did think in a lesser movie, oh, the demons are real. Like I was worried it was going to do that. But I think the movie is pretty clear about Wyatt is sick and none of this is real. Um, Like I was going to be in in the – as as I was enjoying the story and and realizing what they were doing and as I was revealing more stuff about Christian, I I think it becomes increasingly clear that he – that if it's going to do a demons are real, it's going to be a last minute ah gotcha twist because everything is clearly set up that that Wyatt is sick that that nothing ob- objective uh, there, there's nothing objective about what's happening to him nobody else sees it uh, it, it it's all oh, you're right you're right um, but you could so, be watching frailty but, and, but well, you, that, that's and you can frailty is a perfect example a number of things I mean that weird thing where he he dumps the beer bottle out and refills it with water. I mean, there's a lot of things where you could think, well, maybe he's an alien. What, what things no, no, he explains for? to the doctor. He explains to the doctor and Christian that he, he doesn't drink anymore and that he's given up caffeine um, right. because he's worried about being schizophrenic. And, and, and it's kind of – that's why it's a significant moment when he actually does get drunk w- with Christian. Uh, right, so that – Sort of controverts that. I mean, so well, I don't think he's not doing because he's an alien. You're like, why is this guy dumping out his beer? And then when he's talking to the doctor, he's saying, well, you know, I don't think I'm schizophrenic, but I've stopped drinking. I've stopped uh, taking. I've stopped. Uh, I haven't had any caffeine. Um, I mean, it's clear that this is a guy sort of struggling with mental issues and maybe alcoholism. Right. At least that's it, what I got from that. But but as we talked about when we talked about take shelter that doesn't mean that those two things are mutually exclusive a person can have mental illness and there still be aliens in the world so i mean those two like things can be going on at the same time yeah so but that, that, what i what i realized in watching this movie was this filmmaker is going to let me know at the very last moment one or the other and i just have to sit until the last moment to find that out and i, I mean i like the things that it was doing i just didn't care for them Sure, I'm, I'm not saying you have to, but I'm just saying I don't. I don't think the the fake out is our demons real. I don't think that's ever what it's doing. Uh, what it's doing is is this psycho guy going to kill Mara or his friend? Uh, I think that's the the thriller that it's sort of pretending to be, uh, and not. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, oh, well, there was a moment where I thought, well, he must have killed Mara. I mean, when he come when Christian comes back from the store with the tea store, whatever that was. To say, what have you done tomorrow? Where's Mara? Um, and well, they're the matching power- axes and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, the more powerful moment of that, and and it's again very telling about the, the, their relationship. Uh, when he's agreed that he'll do anything, but we're not. I'm not going to kill anyone. And that's when uh, he gets Wyatt's trust enough to say, okay, what did you see, Wyatt? And that's when Wyatt explains what he saw happening to Mara. And Christian says, "Did you hurt her?" And he's right. fully prepared to hear him say, "Yeah, you know, I hit her with an axe or, or whatever." Um, but he says, "No, I, I just came over here to you." Uh, Once that's the truth. <laughs> one of the things I really do appreciate about this movie is that it's not a. In years past, this would have been um, a crappy found footage movie, uh, and the, and I like that um, that. That Perry Blackshears doesn't do that. I like that it's just a movie. It's not we're not trying to bend it, pretzel it into a found footage movie. And that's my why my under would be creep uh, because I didn't appreciate the way that 
movie. I, I mean, you guys liked Creep much more than I did. Um, but I really got tired of the found footage element of that movie. It kind of wore me out, even though that's kind of the point of where that movie goes. Um, but I really like the fact that this movie is just movie, but in years past, I think they would have tried to make it a found footage movie, and Perry Blackshears doesn't do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, that would have been really forced. Um, I'm glad they didn't do that as well. My under, because I do feel a lot of it is about paranoia, and uh, my, my under is, and Kelly referenced this before, uh, the Donald Kaufman, or not Donald Kaufman, uh, Philip. Philip Kaufman, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, for how that movie is sort of about per- personal paranoia, how it has this really claustrophobic, weird atmosphere. Um, uh, that's and, your under? Yeah, and I, I really like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, and my over, is, my over is Take Shelter, and I'm definitely bracketing. I, I like this movie a lot. Mm. Um, Interesting. Kelly Wan, what then are, we know what Dingus' under is. What are, what are, well, Dingus, what's your over? What's a movie that you liked better than this? All right, my over is more just related to relationships because I see this more as a relationship movie. The most important things about this movie to me are the, are the relationship between Wyatt and Christian and, and what this movie has to say about trust. Uh, because while I didn't really care for the way that final uh, scene in the basement plays out, not final, but that scene in the basement plays out. So that's the final scene. We never leave that basement. Yeah. Um, I do love what it says about trust and what it says about friendship. Um, and, and that, that, you know, I was kind of teetering on, and again, I'm, you know, I'm not saying I hated this movie but by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's very well made. Um, uh, but in, in, in those moments where I'm, where I'm seeing what this movie is dealing with trust, uh, I really, really liked that very much. And I liked how, um, how Christian is having to learn to basically decide whether or not he's going to live. Um, and, and putting his hands or his life in the hands of, of Wyatt, who's having to decide whether or not he's sane. Um, I, I really do like that element of trust. So, uh, as far as relationships are concerned, and this isn't closely bracketed because I like this movie much more than I liked, um, um, uh, they look like people, but I would put upstream color, uh, in sort of the same area as far as how this movie fe- made me feel while watching it as the, there's a, there's a certain, um, WTF, uh, factor that goes on for me and figuring out what relationships are real and what, what's not real and what's going on. So, uh, upstream color is, 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 is higher than this. Um, I, I'm sorry not to bracket it as closely, uh, but it's 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 above. Uh, they look like people. So you're saying they look like people is almost as good as Upstream Color. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well done, Tom. Uh, Kelly, on what was your under? Did you say your under before? My under is disturbing behavior with Kitty Holmes. Oh my god. Well, I bracket wide. You know, it's like take shelters way up. That's my over. His over is wild things. Is that true, Kelly? Wand? Wild things too. Which one's Susan Ward? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know there is a Wild Things two. I think there's a three. Did you know there are? I think there are four Poison Ivy movies, maybe three. Yeah, I've seen three of them. I've seen the Jamie Presley one. The uh-huh. Drew Barrymore one's really good. Her name uh, is pronounced Jaime. Jaime Presley. Uh, that girl from Melrose was on one of them. I wouldn't know who that is. 
Wow. All right. So uh, tell us about why disturbing behavior – or no, what would you call it? Yeah, yeah disturbing dis- behavior. Why is that uh, not quite as good as they look like people? It just doesn't have as good a wind up. Um, Did you, by the way, get creeped out by uh, by Mara's face? Does that does that stuff work on you, Kelly Wand? A little bit, but I was creeped out before that by the dream and um, the so, fact. You mean that, the him lying in bed and the complete silence? By the way, it does that thing where you hear a clock and the clock stops. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I love the sound design and the fly stuff. Like I thought the sound in this. Yeah. Was like, yeah. It's so weird that you keep keying on that that face of hers because that really just feels like one of those, hey, open this picture from email and then all of a sudden it, it feels like well, but it's it not feels a jump so scare. different. It's, it's not a jump scare no. at all. It's a, it's an indication that uh that this guy cuz why would I, I think it's one of the early indications that this guy is not seeing things as they really are. You know, why why, that's why not early, this, that's late, yeah. And then it may not be a horror. No, no, no. The, the picture is like in the first like twenty minutes. No, no. I'm talking about the the thing that you keep keying on is is her weird face after the bloody fingernails, right? Oh, oh, what about it then? It it just feels like one of those weird like YouTube jokes where hey, right, just but, watch this. But there's none of this in the movie until then. Like it's it's it, normally dingus in a movie that's going to roll that out. That's going to be a gimmick. It's going to lean on. Uh, uh, the, they look like people. Does it once and once only, and it only. And it just does it to like her eyes, and and it's not like Jaws and the Shark, where you see the shark finally. And it's not you don't hear the music. And it's it's not like a weird like she doesn't have like crazy teeth, and she doesn't lunge at him. It's just like unsettling, and there's nothing and subtle about it because it's weird. And then the yeah. scene ends, and the flies build to a crescendo. Um, but it, you know, Kelly, well, I don't know if you were kidding, but it, it does have this sense like. Okay, now they're going to start rolling out the monster. Now we're going to start seeing all the CG effects. You know, there's that found footage movie that Kelly and I like called Grave Encounters, where mm-hmm. it's found footage and you think, oh, I'm watching like, uh, like a Blair Witch Project where they just have a dark building and we're never going to see anything. And then early on, they're throwing out like crazy, freaky CG things with scary faces, and that's a wild ride throughout. Uh, so I kind of thought, oh, okay, these guys have. See a but also, budget. They're going to start rolling this stuff out now. You and I are really into Laird Barron, the author. Uh, part of his mythos is there's this, there's these ancient creatures that are disguised as us, and they peel off their skin. And they live in them. Well, you mentioned that too. There's a weird bit during oh, the yeah. that he hears. Uh, it, it's it's interesting too how the voice progresses from a man to Mara to Hannah. You know, his own girlfriend calls him, but. While it's still the man, this sort of nameless person uh, whose identity he doesn't understand, uh, he has this bit about they surrounded us at Jericho. They were at Golgotha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This sort of and, historical basis. For right. It. And, you know, the fact that Wyatt knows that stuff, not only was this guy an EMT, but he knows, like, Hebraic history. Like, what? They yeah. Just, yeah. But well, the, and there's a there whole. A, yeah. Isn't there a moment? Is it in the jujitsu scene? Where she where she jumps on his back and it looks like she's about to peel his face away. No, that's not her. I mean, we don't know who that is. It's just that weird figure behind him in the in the. It's it's oh, that's a dream sequence. Yeah, it's when uh, it's when they're I thought drunk. it was her though. Is it her? It didn't. I had no idea who that was. It's just this dark figure comes up behind him and and does that thing Dings is talking about. Like jumps on his back and like it looks like they're about to peel the face it's, away. Right. It's, I don't think she's on anyone that's on his back. It's just someone walks up behind him. It's someone in black, and the 
it's cutting from the from oh. Watt's face to his perspective, and then the final cut. Is, oh, you're right. It looks like Ant Man in the background. Right, right. It's like some kind of figure in, in a mask or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I conflated, I, I, I conflated the two scenes, but I remember seeing that figure in the background, going, "Oh, look, Ant Man's back there." Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think that's supposed to be her. I mean, maybe it is. It hadn't occurred. No, no. I, I think you're right. I, I just conflated the jujitsu scene in that. You mean when she's teaching him judo? Yeah, when she's like, oh. when she throws him, like, like somebody did that to me. If a girl like just threw me, like, you don't know if I've got back problems. What are you doing, throwing me like that? You weird. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, uh, it's total meat cute. Yeah, it, it is a total meat cute. But still, I'm thinking, God, I have friends who have severe back problems. I would kill you yeah, if you did that to one of my it. friends. But but you're right. It's it's the Ant Man scene that I'm thinking of. Hmm. The face peel away thing that you guys are talking about with Larry Baron. That's and, more jujitsu. And they don't do any effects there, by the way. It just cuts when you know fingers touch his face. There's no it's, CG of like uh, it's gore. There's no gore or anything. Uh, exactly, exactly. And you think, okay, okay, now we're going to see something. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Just, oh, go ahead, Kelly. Sorry. Well, he doesn't wake up in like a cold sweat either. He just wakes up like. Well, do you remember what wakes him up? It's the phone. Yeah, he gets another phone call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, Kelly. So your under is the Katie Holmes classic, Disturbing Behavior. What's a movie <laughs> that's Marsden is in that as the hero? Oh, I love me some Cyclops, especially it's the movie you know, he gave us. Yeah, the, the definitive James Marsden is the Straw Dogs remake, of course. Everybody knows that. Yeah, where's the slippies? Yeah. Kelly, what's a movie that's slightly better than they look like people? Transfers two. <sighs> no, my over was Take Shelter. Oh, it was Take Shelter. You stole my over. Well, that, that I thought, isn't it all our overs? One, two, three, I wish Britney Spears did soundtracks for movies. <laughs> that was your Britney line? Wasn't that all she our overs? The, she did the, the music for uh, <laughs> uh, Boy Friends. There's some Britney Spears. Oh, Crossroads, you want? Not the Ralph Macho Crossroads. I've actually seen that one. That's another one where you're not sure if it's real or not. I know. She might just be going nuts with an old man. That's right. Is that yeah. really the devil? Mm-hmm. All right. Him. This is a pretty straightforward one. Kelly, I'm, I'm sure even you didn't have trouble with this one. I just want uh, three tracks from your three favorite or three of your favorite, I forgot how to put it, composers for movies. <laughs> I don't want any musical stuff. Don't tell me about how much you love Phantom of the Opera. You didn't say your three favorite, just three composers you like. Okay, so three of your favorite composers, three tracks oh, that you. sort of represent like why they're your favorites. What's great? Tracks. Tracks. What do you call them? Yeah, tracks, right? Because they're on an album. Yeah. Yeah, it's between the tracks, the the little grooves where the needle goes on the phonograph. We all know how to listen. (laughs) Groove to the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Dingus, start us off. Give it. Oh no. You know what? We're gonna roll out some high tech on this podcast. Here is Dingus's number three pick. I 
Craig Kingis, explain your... Sahara? Oh my god. Kelly Wand. It's my guess. Uh, this, this is... Um, no. Here's a quote from it. It's alright, don't worry, you're in a hospital. It's from a movie called The English Patient. Um, and this is a, a score composed, uh, well, not a score, the, the piece that I've chosen is the, is the first is the first piece in the uh, in the actual score and the first piece in the movie um, by Gabriel Gabriel Yarret, uh, or, or it's called the English Patient is the name of the first thing, um, and uh, I went through a couple of things when I was I, I went through a lot of things this week. Tom, you just kicked my ass this week. You totally kicked my ass. I could. I was enjoying too listening to what movies you were watching too. Um, I watched a ton of movies. Uh, I have a ton of soundtracks because I love scores. I love collecting them. Um, uh, and I had to. I mean, it was super hard because Tom said you can't reference a bunch of other things and say I chose this. Um, you can't. You're not going to have any runners up. Um, this is brutal. This was absolutely brutal. And you uh, used – what's his name? Jared Yared – Gabriel Yared? Because I, I love that soundtrack, but I couldn't tell you for the life of me who it is. I, I couldn't tell you either. I mean, he's oh. a composer. It turns out I, I like his stuff. I mean, he did – he's done a couple of different things. I mean, weirdly enough, he did the, he did the score for Troy, and it got rejected. Ew. <laughs> um, which is weird. I wonder uh, who he finally went with for the score for Troy. Yeah. Um, but this is just somebody that um, uh, Miguel had just found that he really, really loved. Um, Miguel, wait, wait, what? That uh, I'm sorry, I'm probably saying his name wrong. Uh, Anthony Mingela? Is that how you? Oh, say? oh, Mingela. Right, right, right. The director. Yeah. I thought I thought you were talking right, right. No, no. That Anthony Mingela found for for the English patient and gave him a bunch of ideas, and he just went off and and did this beautiful score and this and and so. Kind of what I did at, at the beginning of the week, and and usually I some, sometimes I, I I think about it throughout the week. Sometimes I leave it till the last minute. Sometimes I knew I know right away. Uh, but right away I put down like, okay, there's two questions I'm going to ask myself: Do I own this score, and do I own this movie? Um, those are the only two things I'm going to pay attention to, and that that immediately went out. Uh, do I need to pair it with a scene was the next thing I came up with, but you kind of had to dismiss that Tom. Um, when I asked it last week, do I need to pair it with a scene? Yeah. You don't have to worry about that. But, um, but what I really, what really started to work for me is does, does this piece of music make me want to watch the movie again? And, more importantly, as I started to look through my collection of movies, as I look at the spine of the movie, does the music pop into my head? Um, and this particular piece of music uh, both popped into my head and made me want to watch this movie again, which I did. Uh, and there's this that there's this beautiful calligraphy going on, like on the wall of a cave in the beginning of the movie, and it and it's 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 just this this beautiful. I don't know. It's it, it the the music. I don't know. I don't think it's a highly regarded soundtrack, even though it won uh, the Academy Award that year. Um, but nevertheless, the, the it's got this wonderful and I I meant to have uh, have her name at, at the ready. Uh, the the woman who's singing that early part of the song, um, but it's got this Hungarian. 
sensibility to it and a couple other things. It's not just Middle, Middle, Mid, Mid, Middle Eastern music, which I think you might immediately think when you hear that and think of the desert, um, but it's got this Hungarian sound to it, and Gabriel Yard is, is feathering in all these different ideas that he then plays through for the rest of the score. But the, the, the piece that I'm choosing is that first piece. And it was really difficult, Tom, um, because as I looked time and again at the music I really loved, um, I kept coming to things in my soundtrack collection that would be like main title, main title, main title. And I'm like, do I really want to name main title over and over again? Uh, but nevertheless, uh, luckily they don't call this main title. It's actually called The English Patient. Um, and I love that it starts with that beautiful Hungarian singer starting that opening part and, um, and then it feathers into the music that leads you into the plane flying over the desert. All right. Kelly Wand, you did not rank yours, so I'm just going to play one of them. And you'll have to tell the listeners, because I don't know if anybody's going to guess at least two of these three, what this is the music to. Are you ready, Kelly Wand? Here's your number three, at least the third of yours that I am choosing. Sounds suspiciously like a song to me and not a soundtrack. What the heck? What the heck? What is this? All right, obviously, Kelly, wait, wait. Glad we waited for that. Kelly, what was that? And it's obviously your favorite. Uh, Explain yourself. Well, that's from the motion picture Talons of the Eagle. It's a martial arts movie from uh, 1992. And the composer's name is Jonas J. Patrico. And I like it because it, summon, it summarized machismo without giving away like the whole plot of the movie. And um, the night I heard it for the first time, I was really worried because I had a a chemistry exam coming up. And how'd you do on that test? Well, I'd spent all semester copying off someone, so I didn't know anything about chemistry. So I was really worried. And then when I saw that movie, that song pumped me up. And so I went into the test the next day with like new energy. And you aced it. The guy I copied off of was sitting next to me by chance. Perfect. And I got a C minus. Good. Here's my third favorite composition. This guy's going to be fairly popular, I imagine. We've got a lot of reader submissions. But this is not one of his better-known bits. It is, however, my favorite. Kelly Wan might recognize this. That's something I don't know a lot about music, but that's called a fugue. Kelly Wand, do you know what a fugue is? It's called Shark Cage Fugue. Do you know what a fugue is, Kelly Wand? Oh, it's about uh, half a (laughs) headway. Fugue means a confused mental state, but in music, 
It means uh, – and I know just enough to kind of explain this. It means when you take a melody and you play it and then replay it in different ways, uh, I think it's called contrapunctually. I'm not, I'm, now I'm on shaky ground. But it's where you play a melody over and over and sort of thread it in with itself. Um, and this is a bit in the Jaws soundtrack that uh, John Williams wrote. It's called Shark Cage Fugue because they're building the shark cage at this point. It's the first point of the movie, and it's fairly late that all three men are, are coming together and working on the same plan. It's a pivotal moment. Uh, the plan will not work. Spoiler. Uh, and it's the music of them – of a montage of them putting the cage together, and it's just like so – you know, previously the music had this Bernard Herman kind of, eh, hey, I'm like psycho and I'm representing the, the stalking shark with that whole famous iconic like pulsing – I don't even know. Is that a cello or whatever that, that instrument is? It represents the shark coming up. Everybody knows that from Jaws. Um, but this is John Williams unleashing this really playful, musically intricate piece, and I call it a piece the same way you might call like you know, a Mozart piece a piece. Uh, and it's just a fantastic bit of music. Uh, it's so well-crafted, uh, and there's lots of great stuff that John Williams has done. I don't think anybody's going to pick this, so I'm going to mention it. John Williams, like uh, the, the Force Awakens theme, especially like he's got this motif for Ray. He's doing some really, really cool like actual composer stuff. I mean there are things in Force Awakens. They're like pieces, um, but the first time where I really – appreciate that about john williams above all the other stuff he's done is that one little bit from jaws which is shark tank fugue um, mm-hmm. all right dingus this is your number two pick here we go needs no introduction that's pretty famous right kelly one do you recognize that that's from skyfall <laughs> i would think most people would know that like that seemed because most people would know that right give us a line from the movie someone's spinning in a field jesus does that happen <laughs> <laughs> i still love that line it occurs so many times give it to kelly wand again maybe he'll recognize it jesus tom I'm so sad. All right, Dingus, what what is that from? Who's the composer, and why uh, why do you like that bit? All right, this is Millish Crossing. Um, the composer oh, yeah. is, of course, anyone, anyone, Carter Burwell. Um, this was really difficult for me uh, because one of the things I think you stipulated, Tom, was that you can choose one thing from one composer. Mm-hmm. You can't just stack up on composers. So I had a co- couple composers, which is why it's weird that I wound up with Gabriel Yard for my number three, because I have a couple of people that had to stack up, um, and I had to just let them go. Yep. Um, so I went back and forth with another choice, 
um, for a Carter Burwell. Uh, I watched both of them this week, um, but the way that this then this this particular um, title is just called Opening Titles, which I don't like. I really don't like that. I wish that they would just come up with a name for it. <laughs> um, uh, I, but as I as I watch the movie and the the way the movie opens and then that hat and what you understand about his dream about the hat and what she says to him interpreting his dream about the hat. And then he tells her that, you know, nothing more foolish than a man chasing his hat. Um, and the way that this music not only plays into what the culture of the mob versus mob violence is in this particular town, Irish versus Italians and, and how that all plays out. Um, and all the other underlying themes of this movie. I love the way that this whole, that this whole opening scene, this whole opening title scene by Carter Burwell, but builds so beautifully. It starts so beautiful and low, and then it, and, and then it, it, but it has this beautiful, interesting lightness to it that you heard, that you heard as, as Tom played that little clip. But then it gets dark at the end. It gets this weird darkness at the end. And it has this whole sense of an, understanding of uh of the way like an overture might work of of this is the story of the movie played within the credits of the the, the within the opening credits song uh so it's just this is the if i were going to choose a carter burwell this is the carter burwell that i'm choosing dingus hold that thought because here is kelly Wan's second favorite piece of music from a composer who he really likes is that all it does? Is there more? Oh, sorry. I'm not hating that. What is that? Is this from Dark Star? What is that? It does sound John uh, Carpenter. Like, this could totally be in Big Trouble in Little China. Here's yeah. Jack Burton. Jack Burton is giving a speech right now. All right, Kelly One, what is that? It's from the only science fiction Chuck Norris movie. Oh, my God. Uh, the score is by Peter Bernstein and Mark Goldenberg. Are those and- your lawyers? Tell me the truth. <laughs> or those composers. Those are your accountants. You made that up. Uh, they started as accountants, but they transferred. To, they were Chuck Norris's accountants, so they <laughs> did a lateral shift, as it's known in the in the biz, as we call business. Um, and the motion picture is, of course, Silent Rage, um, nineteen eighty-one <laughs> or three. Those. Uh, Dingus, did you see Silent Rage? Do you remember? It's the one with the unkillable man. And so he keeps, he's a, a criminal that Chuck Norris beats in the beginning of the movie. He shoots him. And, I, I, uh, I only watch Charles Bronson movies. I don't watch Chuck uh, Jimmy Page did the Death Wish 2 soundtrack. So, Ew, are you serious? Yeah. Jeez. It's two people you always hoped would work together, finally. Yep, that's up. why I prefer that. Something productive, yeah. Um, 
But the reason I consider this music really awesome is because it's really repetitive, which is just like what an unkillable man is. Wow. Just like, here he comes, gotta kill him again. You gotta what, give him points for that, Dingus. I yeah, mean, it looks like he of, actually thought of that. What's Jaws the movie again? Silent Rage, right, Kelly? Yeah, because yeah. he doesn't talk, the unkillable man. He just fights. Who kills. plays the unkillable man? Is it someone famous? Nah, some dude. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He's really tall, though, and he's nuts. He's really crazy when he's alive, and he's, like, hard to kill, and Chuck Norris has to keep shooting. Why him. isn't the movie called Hard to Kill? Yeah. Because that's or, Seagal, brah. Uh, or really tall. Big, fat Seagal, as I call him. <laughs> Uh, I got well. Okay, never mind. Uh, okay, he put here time back in Jonathan Living Stun Seagull. Right. right. So thing is, thing is, uh, well, okay. Here, here's my number two. Kind of in trouble now, Dingus. It was it was this close. It was this close between those two. Colin Crimeoff. The only thing for me is I'm not a big fan of Miller's Crossing. I I respect it more than I like it. Um, uh, right. And certainly the the mute like, but but Carter Burwell. I even crappy movies like like I actually this is not a runner up. I was looking. For the Carter Burwell soundtrack for a, a not very good movie at all called Hoax with with Richard Gere, and the Carter Burwell music in that is awesome. I love the way and and I'm glad I did this instead because this is just this to me is the epitome of what he does. His music can be sort of simultaneously sad and stirring, yeah. and when it, and it's so true with the the bit you picked from Miller's Crossing, Dingus. It gets this. It starts out very personal and ends up with this spectacular sort of epic sweep. It crescendos into that. Um, that kind of reflects a lot of what the Coen brothers do with this idea of personal dilemmas really writ large on bigger canvases. Uh, and that's so much, too, of uh, you, you know Fargo and, and, and Miller's Crossing and Serious Man, just these personal dilemmas really spilling out into a bigger context. And that's kind of how Carter Burwell's music feels, super personal, and then it just breaks out and becomes huge. Um, well, when you when you first hear that music for the first time in your life, you're also watching this little tiny black dot in this giant expanse of white snow, like slowly looming, and then it just comes over that bend just as the music. And it's it's very much like the the sweep of yeah. that, that wilderness, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and 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 those two things really reminded me of each other: that the hat and the in the wilderness, and then the car, yeah. that yeah. huge expanse. Cancer. And and really, you know, I hate to say this, but it kind of came down to me looking at the dates of when he composed both pieces, and thinking, well, which one informs the other? Because as I I watched ah. both of those, and hearing the and and listened because I. I, I I love owning soundtracks. This is a weird thing I have, um, 
listening to them and hearing the way that he builds the themes, I could really hear him building a lot of the themes in Vargo, um, the way he had built the themes in Miller's Crossing. Uh, but your, your point about, uh, the, the large and the personal, cause the, the, you know, it, this isn't a runner up, but one of the other little tracks on Miller Crossing is a man and his hat and the way that thing builds. And, but the way the themes build in Fargo really, I mean, it was so, it was like a razor thin margin. I'm so glad you picked Fargo, Tom. Do you know what that, that piece is called, Dingus? Main it's theme. called Fargo, North Dakota. See, main, this theme. Actually, I think it is called Fargo. You're right. It does have North Dakota, so it's not even the name of the movie. Very good. Okay. It's called Fargo, North Dakota because uh, one of the things I was looking at is are all these going to be called opening titles? God damn it. <laughs> uh, but that was called Fargo, North Dakota. Anytime that something is called main theme, you're supposed to it's put in parentheses. the name of the movie. You're supposed to put in parentheses the name of the movie. You say main oh. theme two in parentheses like Jaws or, or <laughs> Silent Rage or whatever, and you put that in parentheses. All right, Dingus, here is your favorite piece of music from one of your favorite composers. Here we go. Oh, shoot, shoot, stop, stop. What? Dingus, that was not yours. Nothing. Dingus, here's your favorite piece of music from one of your favorite composers. Thanks to the magic of editing, I did not just play the wrong thing. Here we go. Kelly, do you recognize that one? Of course. Can I guess? Can I guess what it's from, Dingus? Yeah, you can. Is that from the trailer to Return of the King? No, it was Two Towers. Two Towers. Towers. God damn it! I screwed up the joke. Ah, the horses are in slow motion. <laughs> it really was amazing when they recorded that music for that movie. I totally blew it. All right, Dingus, uh, explain yourself. Uh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is Lexictorna, uh, is the name of the piece, and is, of course, from Requiem for a Dream. Um, uh, it is, uh, you know, it is well known as, it, it has been used in a couple of different trailers, but it is most famously used in the trailer for Two Towers, uh, which was totally weird to me when that happened. Yeah. They had plenty of music from another one of my favorite composers, <laughs> Howard Shore, right. uh, already. But they chose this particular music, and there, I think there's a reason for that. I mean, it when works. you play that, it, it works so freaking well. And for it's everything. It, it, and that's what's weird about it, Kelly. Uh, and yeah. that's what makes me feel a little uncomfortable about choosing it. The, what you just said, it works for everything. Um, yeah. It makes me feel a little weird about that. But when you watch the scene, the Lux Eterna scene, which is actually on the DVD that chapter is called Lex Eterna, which is the name of the song, or name of the composition that, um, I'm sorry, Clint Menzel 
who was another one of my absolute favorite composers. And this was so hard for me to come up with one choice for this dude. I love his compositions so much. It was so hard, and I'm so glad, actually, even grudgingly or begrudgingly, so I don't know which how you would say this, that Tom limited us to saying, you know, one composer, that's it. You can't just choose, like, because I would have just been hung on all these different things that I love from Clint Mansell. So I just had to listen to and watch um, three different movies that I love that he composed uh, in particular and really pay attention to, again, that sort of when I look at the spine of the movie, which is the one where the where the music pops into my head, which is the moment where I hear that music that I want to pull that off and watch it again, that I really want to see that again. And that moment where, um, and, and this, this particular thing that you're hearing in this piece in the Lux Eterna, which I think is most beautifully realized, but it's built, you know, through the, the summer overture and the other overtures through the rest of the score. But the way the Lux Eterna plays it there at the end or the way he composes it there at the end with Jared Leto's character on the bed and just and and showing everything that has gone on in the movie and basically telling the story of the movie with this piece of composition um I couldn't I couldn't resist using the Lux Eterna um I am just it's weird the the way that movie makes you feel it it it, it can make you feel like broken in a way um but that piece of music uh makes me feel invigorated and i guess i, I don't know any of the it's music that we play today it, it, it you playing that tom just playing that clip uh, you can probably just hear it in my voice. I just feel invigorated. Um, and it is like Kelly, like you just said, it's that weird contrast to what, to the sorrow and the weirdness that is going on in the movie at that particular point. Uh, oh my God, this piece of music, I couldn't avoid using it as my, as my favorite. Which I don't understand why they use it for trailers because when I hear that I think of like all these characters at their nadir. Like I, I don't, I don't think of horses charging across a plane and you guys saying it fits everything. I mean, I guess it's a great piece of music, but I just so associate it with the, the depths of despair at the end of uh, Requiem for a Dream. It's like Hugh Selby Jr. And, and, and Darren Aronofsky at their most bleak, and that music is the the swan song of all these terrible things happening. I just can't – yeah, it makes no sense to me playing it to Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you, could listen to that, you could listen to that song during sex or at a funeral, and it'd still be good. Only if the sex is really terrible, if the funeral is for someone you really loved. Really? It's too beautiful. It's beautiful, of course, but I just associate it with how I experienced it. I mean, it's, it's like the first time. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. heart. It's it's what would you say? Heartrending. It's it's tragic. It breaks it you down. Life, but yeah. it it got um it got taken over by this weird trailer thing that happened to it. Do you it. know other trailers for that used it, Dingus? Like, um, I, no. I, I don't doubt that the studio is like wrong at drive, and I just I just remember it for. Uh, I wish for the two towers trailer. You like look it up. It says trailers that use this, and I just clicked that off because I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't just I was just imagining that, and it wasn't just like some fan thing that had been made. I wanted to make sure that yeah, it was used for the two towers trailer, but then remember it used for a lot of different things. Remember in Requiem for a Dream where they're they're stealing the TV. And you hear the version of the song, and it's and but there's like kind of 
sound effects and like like sure no no that's uh, he does a lot of it plays with the way darren aronofsky's kind of shooting with sound effects right so they should use that version for two towers Kelly one there's a reason you're not in charge of a studio what? Let's just try it and see what happens. Well, here's one of the reasons. Kelly One, here's your favorite piece of music from your one of your favorite composers. <laughs> this is, by the way, not a movie score, which you're hearing yeah, right it is. now. No, it's not. DSI Ray is like some old medieval piece of music. That's all this is. I can play this. You know what? I don't, I don't have any a musical bone in my body. I can do this on a keyboard. It's the only thing I can do on a keyboard. Did you do Silent Rage on a keyboard? No. Let's see if it does something different. Wait, is it going to do something different? No, it's just... All right, what movie is this supposedly from? This is from the motion picture The Shining, and it's really good music, you jerk. It's the DSI Ray. It's like as old as the hills. It's probably from the 13th century monastery in France. Yeah, hills in the credits when you're watching it. But also, remember the part... Isn't there the part later in the where you hear the ghosts uh, sing to it? The ghosts' voice go. Ooh. Oh yeah, the musical number where they all do a song, a music, and they dance. <laughs> no, just it. one ghost. They have a one top hat and a cane. Right, I remember that. Yeah, that's great. And then they move a penny over the door. So yeah, that's uh, that's my. Is favorite. there really something where you think the ghosts are singing the DSIRE? Yeah. Oh. It's like the, it's like 2001 where you hear that one angry guy in the choir <laughs> when you're looking at the monolith and you're like, oh, that's the alien in the monolith. It's like, hey, guys, check out this fart or something. But in <laughs> you hear the one ghost, too. It's like the same character in a way, like the ghost of the monolith. And it's just all, oh, this music's dumb. Like it's agreeing with you kind of. My favorite composer, uh, like Dingus' struggle with uh, Clint Mansell, my favorite composer, there's so many things by him that I like. But one of the reasons that I'm choosing this piece, it's from a movie that nobody but me has seen. Um, And I'm going to tell you guys about the movie, and you're going to go, what? This is a movie with Emily Blunt, and it's one of the reasons – I don't don't like it at all. It's terrible. It's by a guy whose other movies include um, Magic Mike XXL. <laughs> Other than that, his first movie was uh, a, the, a, this adorable, miscast version of an Argentinian uh, heist thriller movie called Nine Queens with John C. Riley called The Criminal, uh, based on uh, Nine Queens, a great Argentinian movie that I know Dingus likes as well. In between those two movies, those are two of his movies, the only other movie he's made is something called Wind Chill, where Emily Blunt gets a ride home from college for the, the uh, Christmas break with a guy from her class that she doesn't really know, and they take a shortcut and get stranded in the car and basically haunted by ghosts on this stretch of haunted road. And I'm going to spoil it for you because nobody needs to see this. is terrible. It turns out they've died in an accident, and they're like in this limbo. And they end up like realizing, oh, we're dead. We're in like a time loop thing. It's a horrible movie. It's called Windchill. Uh, but I love watching Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt is so freaking good, even in things I don't like. I didn't care for Looper, but man, I loved her in that. A big part of why I love your sister's sister and Sicario are just, man, I enjoy watching her act. She's phenomenal. 
She's just beautiful and expressive. And even in this really crappy, crappy horror movie called Windchill, she's so good, and she's really trying hard. And the opening of Windchill and the end of it has a piece of music, the end where she's realized what's going on, and she thinks she's escaping like hell, like this limbo, basically. She's stumbling out of the wilderness. She's exhausted by this ordeal she's been through. This is the music that plays. Guess the composer. It reminds me of the fountain, actually. It's weird. It is a Clint Mansell composition. Clint oh. Mansell did the music for Wind Chill. Blue. Oh, you're kidding me. That's, uh, that was totally fountainy. Oh, God. So fountainy, it's, and, and fountain just is just, I, part of my problem with fountain is I just can't divorce it from everything. I like fountain is so of a piece with the movie, and it's an incredible yeah. piece of music, and I kind of don't want to listen to music because I want to be watching the movie when I hear it and I think of the movie. I mean, Fountain, I just can't divorce from that movie. Same way kind of with Requiem for a Dream. But this is this beautiful piece of music that is, I think, Clint Mansell at its finest. What's the movie again? It's called Wind Chill, like the wind chill factor, and it's terrible. And it's got nothing. I mean, Clint Mansell got hired to do it. And I don't know if this is like B-side stuff from The Fountain or whatever, but it's way too good for the movie. And it plays at the beginning of the movie. And, and I remember it playing, and it's just like Emily Blunt, like in college, and this stuff is playing, and I'm like, wow, what is this movie? Okay, I'm going to settle down and watch this. And then there's other little Clint Mansell bits in the middle, but then at the ending of this ordeal, it's just like emerging from hell, and this is playing. I briefly think, oh my god, this movie is awesome, uh, but that's <laughs> only because of the, the music. Uh, but yeah, I love that Clint Mansell piece. And you don't need me to list it, Dingus. Maybe other people will mention it, but all of his work for so many different movies, and he still kind of retains his identity, but he seems to work just – it just fits so well with the material. Yeah. With the exception of Windchill, where this awesome piece of music is wasted on this, this crappy horror movie. It really, uh, it really sounds like – and this is – it really sounds like the piece Shibaba from uh, from yeah. I mean, that's a gorgeous piece of music. Yeah. Good well, lord. Maybe you should watch Windchill. It does evoke wind chills, that music. Oh, God. If you like like Martin Donovan as a zombie cop, then Windchill also. That's for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have a bunch of picks, so I apologize. I'm going to skim through some of these. Uh, Dingus, can you open your email by any chance? Sure. What do you need? Uh, Could you just follow along and then maybe read some of these after I've read a couple? Yeah, just tell me when. Okay, I'm just starting at the bottom here. TJ Keller chooses, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm so glad that there's input because there's so many that I that need to be mentioned, and I'm so sad, and Dingus, maybe you are too, that Hans Zimmer didn't get mentioned. I don't want to bring up anyone. No runners up, right? Because <laughs> I heard you in there watching Dark Knight, and I was like, oh, yes. Finally, Dingus is going to pick the Joker themes. So I don't have to. Sweet. And Dingus, you didn't. Well, it was really – it's a, it's a huge, long piece. Anyway, go ahead. 
TJ Keller, uh, James Horner from Braveheart, The Battle of Sterling. Mm-hmm. Tom Holkenberg, and thank you so much, TJ Keller, because that was another one. Tom Holkenberg, uh, also known as Junkie XL, has done so many cool things lately. I'm so glad someone mentioned him. Uh, oh, yeah, this is a good one. Spiky Cars from, uh, from Fury Road. Uh, <laughs> um, and he talks about the beat of it, and he says, plus, the piece is freaking called Spiky Cars. Yeah. And then finally, John Williams, uh, Star Wars 5, Emperor Strikes Back. Okay, first of all, TJ Keller, anyone who calls Empire Strikes Back Star Wars 5 <laughs> is, a, is a Philistine and probably can't appreciate John Williams' music for what it is. So take that, TJ Keller. Uh, oh, oh no, okay, you know what? The fact that he highlighted this makes me think, all right, fine. He, TJ Keller knows good music. He, he singles out the Imperial March <laughs> uh, and talks about uh, the – Type of emotion it evokes, and and it, it, you can you can it, the emotions evoked in the first eight measures. I don't know what a measure is, but I agree with what he's saying. Nathan Schubert, uh, he went with a theme: musicians who achieved achieved success in rock electronic music. I know one of them coming. Oh my God, Wendy Carlos, the Sea of Simulation from the 1982 Tron. Wow. Uh, what? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Nuns. Wow. Uh, Johnny Greenwood. Oh, so nice. From There Will Be Blood, the track called Future yeah. Markets. What's the track? Uh, Future Markets. Uh, I, listened to, I listened to that whole first sequence. It's amazing music, but I couldn't find it on the soundtrack. Uh, he says that uh, – so it's Radiohead's guitarist. Um, Nathan says the use of buzzing strings and dissonant notes is wonderfully front and center. Mm-hmm. Uh it frantic pace builds and increases in intensity until halfway point it drops into silence and then slowly comes back in a mournful dirge. And then, oh, okay. Well, you know what, Nathan? I'm glad someone picked this as well. Uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, Atticus Ross, for Social Network, the track is called Soft Trees Break the Fall. Oh. Uh, He says, and this is actually one of the things I appreciate about it, there's none of the Nine Inch Nails founders' trademark anger and raw emotion. It's melancholic, soothing droning synthesizers and plaintive piano melodies. Uh, Yeah, I do like how, you know, you see Trent Reznor's name on something and you're like, oh, yeah, let's get some industrial Nine Inch Nails. All I think about is Seven, but now now Nathan wants me, makes me want to listen to Social Network. Believe it or not, yeah, Trent Reznor is actually a musician in there. I mean, I love Nine Inch Nails as much as the next guy, but I love it for its noise and not necessarily... I think it's quick. Uh, Very good, Kelly Wand. Mm. Paul Weimer, here you go, Kelly Wand. His third pick, John Carpenter, uh, the opening credits to Escape from New York. Mm -hmm. Kelly Wand, can you hum a little of that for us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just go like this. Just make variations of that. That's Halloween, fool. No, but you just mix it up a little, and it's, it's Escape from New York. It's all oh, no, no, right. It does have that kind of like slide guitar-y thing, yeah. Yeah, because Snake's always like, he walks slow and doesn't give a fuck, and that's what the music's kind of saying. I actually own, it was one of the first DVDs I ever bought, the soundtrack to... Uh... Oh, that's a respectable. Uh, John Barry's title music from The Black Hole. <laughs> wow. John Barry did that? Yeah, geez. <laughs> you guys remember the music from Black Hole? Paul, I remember the composers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, John Paul- Barry did um, um, a oh, crap. 
Sorry. See the James Bond guy? No, he yeah he has done James Bond, but he also did the Kevin Costner riding across the plains movie that I love. Straight story. Dances Dances with wolves. wolves. I think that's John Barry. Anyway, I'm almost certain that John Barry also did Goldfinger, but not certain. Uh, I I thought that I I could be wrong, but who is he? The guy that did the famous da 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 like that James Bond theme. You might be right. Yeah. Uh, maybe a listener will pick that. Paul Weimer's number one pick, Freddie Mercury's soundtrack for Flash Gordon. He says mm, it's part of the yeah. juicy fun of the movie. Uh-huh. Arthur Giovanginelli. Thank, well, eh. well, thanks for the composer, Arthur, but I'm sorry you picked this piece. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be judgmental. Hans Zimmer's Waiting for Pain from Inception. One of the most memorable theater experiences he's ever had, Arthur Giovanginelli says. Uh Oh my god, is that the little, oh, that's that horn blast thing over and over, isn't it? Yeah, I, I actually really love, love that. No, you do. Yeah, you are our, Dingus, you are our official Inception apologist yeah. on this podcast. Totally with Arthur on that. I think that that's. Is it train? I know, right? Waiting for, well, they're waiting for one, so I don't know if the train ever shows up. Well, it's, it's, uh, there's a, for, uh, there's a head in the road. Dingus, why don't you just put a condom on your leg? Arthur Giovanginelli's number two pick. And again, okay, Arthur, I'm I'm okay with you picking whatever for Hans Zimmer because this one I'm so glad someone's mentioning it. Death is the Road to Awe from The Fountain, Clint uh, Clint Mansell's piece there. Yeah, good Mm. good pick. Uh, And then his first number one pick is Ennio Morricone's Death of a Soldier from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Is that, mm, that, yeah. famous, that famous riff is from is called Death of a Soldier. Uh, don't, don't forget where, where, music. Where. That's the, supposed to evoke the death of a soldier. That music. Where, I guess where, to Ennio Morricone it does. By the way, who did the music Kelly Wand for the thing? Ennio Morricone. But he sounds like Carpenter. I he know. did different versions, and that was the one that Carpenter picked. Uh, yeah. Randy Connolly. Oh, I like this guy. Oh, I, you know, I was going to say, I, I associate this guy with Lost, so normally I wrinkle my nose. But Michael Giacchino did a great job with the score for The Incredibles. Right yeah. So, um, and the sequence that won him over is Mr. Incredible's second visit to Numonizan Island. It's a jazzy orchestral score. Uh, uh, oh, Joe Hisaishi. Uh, it's a melody line from My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, May's discovery of a small Totoro spirit captures the wonder and whimsy of a four-year-old uh, of a four-year-old's childhood innocence. Very good, Randy. And Randy's number one pick, Kelly. One, I, I expect you all appreciate this. Alfred Newman. Prolific- e. Newman. No, not that one. A different one. Uh, he scored hundreds of films over his forty-year career, but his most recognizable piece is, oh my God, the Twentieth Century Fox fanfare. Oh. <laughs> I did not know that he did that. That's who did that. All right. What him worry? <laughs> that's E. Newman. Oh, Chris Hobson. Uh, oh, good lord. Uh, a song from Steve Jablonski called "Kill Trophy and the Warrior's Birth." Oh yeah. From do you really Kelly one no? Do you really know what that's from? No way. It's from uh, uh, the prophecy. Your Highness. Oh, Dingus is a uh, movie. <laughs> wow. Uh, Wait, what's the name of it again? 
uh, kill trophy and the warrior's birth. <laughs> so uh, Danny uh, Danny McBride he slays a minotaur and captures the legendary blade of the unicorn. It's accompanied by an epic hype up song. That's what it is. Hmm. Hmm. Chris's number two pick, the two towers. Um, it's the three hunters, which is jarring trumpet sounds capturing the mystique of Sauron's Baradur <laughs> Tower headquarters. I'm bummed he didn't say two towers, the Requiem for a Dream music. I know, right? But like pick a two towers version. This is a weird one. Uh, Chris, you don't have to worry about anyone else picking this. The 1934 movie, The Black Cat. Due to a bus accident, two Romanian World War One veterans played by Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, yeah. spending the night in Karloff's mansion uh, with a newlywed American couple. Karloff wants to kidnap the woman for his cult. While they're in the basement, Lugosi, who's being protective of the couple, threatens to kill his old comrade before collapsing to the floor. Karloff then gives a long poetic monologue, while the camera, instead of pointing the characters, wistfully pans around the basement, up the hallway, and up the staircase, while Beethoven's Seventh Symphony plays in the background okay i don't think beethoven was scoring the black cat so but we don't know how time works chris hobson rocks i gotta tell you his choices are awesome i like hobson's choices <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm not pulling him over well charles lawton brian kent uh danny elfman's edward scissorhand soundtrack ice dance <laughs> Gino Yamashirigomi, Kaneda, Akira. I don't know what those words are. I just read them all. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the movie's Akira. The movie's Akira. The cut is Kaneda. The composer is Gino Yamashirigomi. Wow. I don't remember. Okay. It's kind of wild since I've seen Akira. There's a, there's a little bit here about some anime that you should probably be reading. But instead mm-hmm. – Brian Kent's number one pick, uh, James Horner soundtrack for The Rocketeer. The cut is called The Flying Circus. <laughs> uh, Brian says his other selections have a, a limited sound because of the number of units they use, uh, the number of instruments they use. Uh, but my love of this final track has a lot to do with how much it utilizes the entire orchestra to create a huge sound that travels the gamut of tempo intermixed with soft and slow movements. It plays over The Rocketeer's very first flight. Um... After saving the day, the Rocketeer takes a moment in the clouds to enjoy the majesty of flight before suffering a malfunction uh, and crashing through a cornfield accompanied by a mouth harp. <laughs> Wait, that's how he, cra- he crashes accompanied? Well, Brian Kent says he bets this is the only choice that features a mouth harp. Did you guys ever know – like when I was a kid, those were always called Jews harps. Harmonica. Uh, oh. Oh, a mouth harp is a harmonica? Juice harp. A juice harp is that? I don't know why it's probably racist. All at that? No, it's this little. It's like a. Uh, it's like a bite. I don't even know how to describe it. It's a thing you stick perpendicular to your mouth, and then you whack a little uh, piece of metal, and it goes up. Yeah. Boing, 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 boing. Is I we was, I thought that's what he was talking about with the mouth harp. I don't but think what he about the instrument. Michael Hernandez. Uh, first. Uh, oh, I'm so glad. Uh, this uh, let's see john murphy soundtrack for sunshine um huh. john murphy did the 28 days later soundtrack uh in particular this track is titled sunshine parentheses adagio in d minor uh it provides the leap motives for all the iconic sacrifice or struggling scenes in the movie i do love that soundtrack next 
Duncan Jones film of the same of uh, Duncan Jones Moon. The soundtrack is Clint Mansell. Uh, he picked Welcome to Lunar Industries, a complex track with a playful piano melody. Finally, we move beyond our solar system, Michael Hernandez says. <laughs> Thank you, Michael Hernandez, by the way, for picking Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. Dingus is our Inception apologist. I am the Interstellar apologist. Kelly Wand is the Dark Knight Rises apologist. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, no. <laughs> Michael Hernandez says he has to thank Christian for alerting me to this one particular track. Why, why is he thanking you, Dingus? Uh, who knows? Uh, the composer is, of course, Hans Zimmer, and the track is titled No Time for Caution, a song Christian might recall from the following lines. Dingus, he's giving you credit for my pick. The lines Sorry. are, Brand says, what are you doing? Cooper says, I'm docking. He's talking about me picking favorite sound cues, waxing enthusiastic about Hans Zimmer's Cathedral soundtrack. Thing is, he's attributing that to you. How is that fair? It's not. Michael Hernandez? I would blame it on time dilation. Well, not only is Michael Hernandez pulled over, he is thrown in prison for life. Huh. Yep. Worst ways to go. Grant Stewart uh, says it's a difficult – this is one of the more difficult three-by-threes. I actually thought it was easy – well – it's easy in that you don't have to go back and watch and, and Google stuff and watch old movies. It's in your head. It's not right? easy at all. It was well, brutal. Are you kidding? It's it's difficult cerebrally, like to actually decide, but knowing <laughs> candidates for it is super easy. Grant Stewart says, uh, um, number three, what? Okay, yeah, who's in that? Stewart. Blood sport. Uh, yeah. The definition of guilty pleasure is something you legitimately like that you pretend to like ironically. Right. That grand story. This movie epitomizes that, uh, and it's improved remarkably by the original music from Stan Bush. Mm. Number two, Drive. Cliff Martinez did some excellent music for The Lincoln Lawyer, but I really ah, – that sounds like a runner-up. Fair enough. But I really feel that his selection for Drive was absolutely inspired. And number one – Finally, The Dark Knight. Grant Stewart says, okay, I appreciate that allowing Hans Zimmer to do the music for your movie is asking for trouble. Wait, what? Why does he say that, you guys? Uh, Why which is- one's Howard Shore again? Howard Shore's the Hobbit movies, isn't he? Howard Shore did uh, The Hobbit. He also did Silence of the Lambs. Hmm. Why is asking Hans Zimmer to do your music asking for trouble? Um, um, because... I think he's got a bad reputation at this point, but he didn't do this. He didn't do the music alone. Oh, reputation! Like he's hard to work with. Not that he's going to give you crappy music. Not necessarily. It's it's just the idea that um, I don't know that uh, he's done so much stuff, and it's just that it's that tap. I mean, I, I think that's kind of the uh, the idea of it. Oh, well, he hmm. says uh, he really feels, and I don't know anyone who would dispute this. That Zimmer's contribution was vital to the visceral nature of The Dark Knight. For what it's worth, I also like his work on Inception and The Dark Knight Rises. What? No love for Interstellar, Grant Stewart? Uh, um, but uh, to be fair, Hans Zimmer did the mo- did the music with. I mean, he did he did the Joker stuff, and James Newton Howard, I think Howard did the Batman stuff. Ah, okay. I, I think that w- mm. what they tried to do was was. Um, 
And I, I, I listened to a lot of this and listened and tried to figure out what was going on with both of those things is that, um, when they first went to it, Christopher Nolan was very much like, well, we've got a lot of the stuff from Batman Begins, but we can just use a lot of that stuff, right? And Hans Zimmer's like, uh, we'll see. Well, Grant Stewart says, uh, he freely admits that listening to Zimmer's music for 12 years a slave is like someone pooing in your kettle. Oof. Huh. But he didn't write pooing. He wrote a more uh, – he wrote a curse word that I'm not going to read on the air. <laughs> Nick D. <laughs> says, number three, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. <laughs> Randy Edelman is best known for his work on Last of the Mohicans. Wait, what? Last of the Mohicans is Trevor – No. Trevor Howard? Who is the last of the Mohicans guy, Dingus? I, uh, gosh, you got you caught me flat-footed. I don't, I don't know. think it's a guy named Randy Edelman. I would remember that. There might uh, be Randy, Randy Edelman. He was a big deal at that time. He didn't do Lies of the Mohicans, did he? No, it's like a... Mm, I'm going to dispute that. I'm not, right. I'm not pulling you over, Nick D., but I am going to uh, ride on your tail for a while and might maybe flash the lights before I pull away. <laughs> uh... Uh, Nick D says he always remembers the score from Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, and it's way better and more memorable than the movie deserves. Number two, Rudy. The two things it has going for it is Sean Astin's performance and Jerry Goldsmith's score. Ah, very good. I, didn't, I didn't think that was a name we were going to hear. Why do you say very good thing? It's like, do you, do you, like, I, I can't, I don't think I could name a Jerry Goldsmith's score. I I tend to equate him with Star Trek things for some reason. Ew. Well, I read nice. the case. <laughs> uh, Nick D calls it a beautiful, uplifting melody, the Rudy score, that completely bypasses his reaction to the typical cliche sports in the movie. And then number – oh, my God. The Rock, which I was going to roll my eyes at, but then Nick D says, the moody, swelling hand Zimmer theme that opens The Rock – is evocative and gorgeous, and he's convinced it's the only reason anyone likes the movie. Um, what about the plot? <laughs> Aaron Kane. That's what the screenwriter said. Aaron Kane, who is, true story, a music professor, claims this is a challenging topic. Oh, good, Aaron Kane. Way. He says he's choosing cuts that he finds as moving and effective taken out of their context. Ah, Number three, Ennio Morricone, Gabriel's oboe from The Mission. I like that pick. Yeah, me too. Very good pick. Mm-hmm. I, I almost had a Morricone. Yeah, I almost had one of those too, but not from The Mission. That's great. A haunting theme that starts out as diegetic sound when Jeremy Irons tries to play a melody on his oboe upon arrival in the South American jungle. Then it becomes one of the major musical themes in the soundtrack. It has a lovely improvisatory quality and even stylistically appropriate for the 1750s, which is when the movie's set. Number two, Thomas Newman, American Beauty. The, he, Aaron calls it the plastic bag dance. Uh, <laughs> Aaron says, yeah, the film doesn't hold up. But this cue is extremely affecting, and I think represents the best of what Thomas Newman does. I don't think he gets enough credit as a film composer. That's the only dance I can do, by the way. <laughs> And then Aaron Kane's number one, Brian Eno, an ending, parentheses, ascent, from For All Mankind from 1989. Dingus, do you know what that is? Yeah, I know what that is. It's not a movie, is it? No, it's not, but it's something, yeah, all right, it's cinematic. 
It's a documentary. Before Tom calls the cops on me for being from a documentary and not, quote, a real movie, Aaron writes, I'll point out that this ethereal music cue might win the award for being represented in other films. It's been repurposed for over 12 TV shows, three commercials, a few video games like Thief 2, for instance, and used as a borrowed sample in numerous pop tunes. Wow. But y'all might remember it best as the music over the closing scene of Soderbergh's Traffic (laughs) or in 28 Days Later when the characters are eating and watching the horses frolic. (laughs) Wait, that one's – that's from Traffic? (laughs) Brian Eno from a documentary. Uh, Dingus, could you start picking uh, with Chris Hornbostel's email? With Chris Hornbostel's? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, uh, to help me know the field, I eliminated from consideration all comp- – all right. So Chris starts with Curtis Mayfield is the composer. The piece is Pusher Man from the film Superfly. Hmm. Uh, it's two compounds. Just compound eyes, too, so it's three. So Chris says Superfly is one of the greatest soundtracks ever recorded. Wow. With so many terrific songs, you'd think it was a music-based movie, but it isn't. Of all the great tracks Mayfield wrote and recorded for the film, Pusher Man is the one that sticks out to me for the way it is integrated with close-up scenes of a Cadillac driving through 1970s New York at night, following a hero into a club, and perfectly evoking a sense of time and place with a song that later ended up as one of the most sampled tracks in hip-hop culture. Do you guys remember Superfly? That's Samuel Jackson. Just the twist at the end where you find out it's all imaginary. It's weird to hear the word twist after watching uh, Miller's Crossing again. Um, Chris Hornbostel's number two. Uh, a, A composer named Ennio Morricone... Um, the piece is Harvest from Days of Heaven. Ooh. Although it is a classical composer, Camille Saint-Saëns' aquarium that seems most indelibly associated with this film, Marikini actually echoes elements of that piece in Harvest so much that it sounds like a continuation of that piece. Director Terrence Malick, I don't think we've heard of him before, uses this song as a recurring music motif in the movie. For a movie with so little dialogue, Harvest is important as a framework for enhancing the dreamlike nature of the images on screen. And finally, and I love this song so much. Thank you, Chris. Uh, John Brian. Do you say his name? Brian? I think it's just, yeah, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. John Brian is the composer. The piece is Here We Go from Punch Drunk Love. The harmonium, a sort of tiny piano organ thing, can sound really terrible. This is a staple of 70s soap opera soundtracks and people who romance music beds. It is melodramatic by its very nature and usually used in mawkishly crass ways. John Bryan, who happens to be one of my favorite songwriters ever, utilizes it so well here by making it an accent instead of a main piece. Here we go. Features a John Bryan piano triplet and strings out front. The harmonium only comes in as a brief, recurring riff later in the song. That accent is perfectly memorable, though, and forms a gorgeous recurring theme through the film. In the movie, Barry even even eventually plays those same notes on his found harmonium in the end. When Lena leans over him, hugging him, and utters the line that is the title of the piece, the result is one of my favorite images ever in a Paul Anderson film. 
Yours in Music Geekery, Chris Hornbostel. Paul Anderson, the director of the Resident Evil movies, right? Uh, uh, what? You have to call it. It's P- you have to say the full P.T. Anderson thing, because otherwise, uh, there's one born every minute. It's weird uh, to listen to the opening parts of that soundtrack and try to figure out what track you're going to use. <laughs> I love that soundtrack so much. Punch Drunk Love, you mean? What'd you say? Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, mean? Punch Drunk yeah. Love. Listening to that soundtrack is so weird. It's such a weird experience, and I just keep my eyes keep going down to the track. Here we go. I love that song so much. Here we go. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll trade off with you, Dingus. So I'll do. Uh, Sebastian Dunn says, uh, "Just one came to mind for him. Uh, if you could pick more from the same composer, there'd be a full list." But Sebastian, good on you. You only picked one. He chose Ennio Morricone's "The Man with a Harmonica" from Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says a dartboard in the track list for the movie couldn't have picked a similarly good piece, but dartboards don't have broadband. Oh, he sent us a YouTube link. Uh, Sebastian, we can't push YouTube links through the podcast, I'm afraid. Um, mm. But uh, it's Man with a Harmonica. So there's a Death of a Soldier and Man with a Harmonica. Which one is the famous wow, wow, wow bit? Yeah. Is that Death of a Soldier or Man with a Harmonica? No idea. All right. What? <laughs> what just the, happens? There's the famous bit from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. We've had yeah. people mention one track called Man with a Harmonica and another one called Death of a Soldier. Mm. Which which one is the famous thing? That's Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Isn't right. It? They're both from once. Oh, shoot them up. Oh, you're right. Never mind. Never mind. Thanks, Kelly Wan, for listening to the words that we say. Sorry. Man with Harmonica is Once Upon a Time. Okay. <laughs> More quick in the dead because it's the same uh, thing, same plot. I wonder if I've been conflating Once Upon a Time with the West with uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, like in other instances. In, in which case, I really feel foolish. Like, have I said like, "Oh, Eli Wallach is in Once Upon a Time in the West," and nobody's corrected me on it? He is. That's the thing. He's not. You said Once Upon a Time with the West, wherever it is, and with whomever it is. <laughs> Is that the one where Henry Fonda's a bad guy? Yeah, and Claudia Cardinal's... Yeah, I've never seen it. I know of it. Uh, one's Bronson, one's Eastwood. Charles Bronson is in Once Upon a Time in the West? Yeah, Ew. he's the hero. Ew. He's good in it. Ew. You like Charles Bronson? No. <sighs> Who likes Charles Bronson anymore? I love Charles Bronson. You crazy? The mechanic, great escape. The, the Mechanic is a Jan Michael Vincent movie. Charles Bronson is like the supporting character. Uh, <laughs> I think one of us is dumb. <laughs> I'll I'll take you up on that one, Gellywand. All right, it's Chris Webb. What does he have for us? A great topic, chick. Says Chris Webb. Uh, I thought many more than three, but I'll respect the letter of the law. So Tom, he's already on your side. Uh, number three from Chris Webb. A quote: "But me and my daddy, we stay right here. We's who the earth is for." The sequence in Beasts of the Southern Wild. That leads up to the title card is amazing and almost spoils the rest of the movie for me because of how good it is. The celebratory violin-driven song that plays is key to the power of the sequence. I think ebullience is an appropriate description. The piece is called The Bathtub and was composed by a fellow named Dan Romer as well as the director, Ben Zeitlin. Uh, I just want to quickly say, if you want to ruin a piece of music – absolutely ruin it no matter how good it is 
use it as the alarm to get you up in the morning on your iPad. Because that's what I have done to the bathtub. I love that piece of music. It's on my iPad, so I was just like, oh, what do I want to get up to? I don't, not one of these loud dings or rings or sci-fi noises. I'm just going to pick something that's on my iPad. I picked that, and I now associate that with having to get out of bed in the morning, which is sad. Uh, I know. When do you have to get up in the morning? It's happened. Uh, Morning is fungible. (laughs) That's that's not what fungible means, but I got. I don't know what fungible means. (laughs) Yeah, that's. I don't either, but I don't think it means that. (laughs) No, I don't think it is. It doesn't apply to morning. <laughs> it depends how you spell morning. Oh, yeah. With the, uh, all right. Chris Webb's number two, quote, amid the chaos of that day when all I could hear was the thunder of gunshots and all I could smell was the violence in the air, I look back and I'm amazed that my thoughts were so clear and true that three words went through my mind endlessly, repeating themselves like a broken record. You're so cool. You're so cool. You're so cool. The Hans Zimmer track, appropriately titled You're So Cool, defines the movie True Romance for me. Without this delightful piece of xylophone music, I don't think I would like this movie as much as I do. Tarantino script and all. It's it's a perfect mood in the beginning and wraps up the end beautifully. I I would not have guessed Hans Zimmer did the the, uh, music for... True romance. Yeah, if that was like a quiz and you gave me like three movies that he did music for, you'd say like Interstellar, True Romance, uh, Air Bud. I would definitely pick Air. Uh, I would definitely pick True Romance. That's what I meant to say. I would never <laughs> guess he would have done True Romance. Always pick True Romance. Yeah. So Chris Webb's number three pick. His quote is "Fool." The apex of Mad Max Fury Road is the sequence that begins with the shout from Furiosa along with some weird electronic musical notes, and ends with the seven occupants of the war rig working beautifully as a team to ward off both the dirt bike gang and a Morton Joe's army. Um, it's, com- it's the Brothers in Arms sequence composed by J- Junkie XL. Have you heard of that guy? Yeah, his name is like Tom Hollander or Tom Halkin or something like that. Who knows? And this whole section of the movie always gives me goosebumps. The dramatic strings and heavy percussion matched with the action on screen are breathtaking. Shaheen Ali says he saw nice guys and has some random thoughts. But Shaheen, send those to us in a separate email, please. We love when you guys tell us about the movies we've seen. We want to read that on the air. But uh, go to the trouble of sending us two separate emails so your comments don't get lost. Shaheen says for his 3 by 3 Clint Mansell's Moon soundtrack. Vangelis' Blade Runner bit. Interesting. Mm. Uh, I, yeah. Um, mm. And then uh, Shaheen says, sorry, can only think of two. Wow, Shaheen. I wish I had your problem. <laughs> Dave McLeod, 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 McLeod writes, uh, third place, the, the composer is – wait, composer disaster piece. Oh, God, awesome. Uh, the movie is It Follows. Uh mm. Disaster Piece is the composer, and the track is called Heels. Uh, he wants uh. Disaster Piece to take point on all synthy horror soundtracks from now on. Uh. Uh, second place is the movie, ew, the movie The Incredible Hulk, 2008. Hmm. That's the one where he fights poodles, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the second one. He, was, he wasn't incredible yet when he fought poodles. What did he fight in Incredible? Is that where he fought Tim Roth? Uh, yeah. He doesn't fight poodles. Oh, that's Edward Norton fighting Tim Roth, not Eric Bana fighting poodles. He fights sound tanks. 
Oh my god, yeah, right. From Dune to the RTS. Well, uh, it's, the composer's Craig Armstrong, and the track Hulk theme. Okay. <laughs> okay. Instead of smash, Hulk theme. <laughs> right, exactly, right. That's what Hulk it's calls verb. it. It's a command. Dave McLeod says, uh, this is, uh, Armstrong's among his favorite traditional composers. Uh, and this score for the Hulk is his favorite from the, what Dave calls, superhero nascence. I don't oh. think that word quite works. Superheronism. Oh, that kind of works a little better than what I tried to do. It's like the word fungible. Super. Right, right, yeah. Although I think I'm pronouncing fungible correctly. I think we got that part of it. Dingus, we know how to say it. We may not know what it means, but I think we got the pronunciation. You're over the pronunciation hump. Thank you. <laughs> Dave McLeod's number one – butcher. you know what I'm just going to call you, Dave M. Dave M's number one. So glad this was called out as well. The composer, Shane Carruth. The movie, Upstream Color. The track, Mm. the rays which stream through the shutter will no longer be remembered when the shutter is wholly removed. Hmm. That is the name of a track on Upstream Color. That is awesome. Uh, Dave points out that Carruth does everything, including the score, and it might be why the films can be so cold to some people, but personal and strangely emotional. Um. Dave compares it to going on a date with an alien or Keanu Reeves. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> what, what's I can't. the difference? Uh, wow, we got spam. That's the first time. Awesome. Yeah, we've got two spams. Oh, sweet. Man, we, we know we've made it when, for whatever reason, an email that only gets announced on the podcast is getting spammed. Uh, Esteban writes in no particular order. Eh, sorry, Esteban. You know what? You can't. I'm going to give you an order. I'm going to arrange yours in order. Esteban's number one, Black Hawk Down from Hans Zimmer again. The track, mm. Gortoza Ron. Mm, okay. Mm. Uh, he's also picking Hans Zimmer, another soundtrack. No, three separate composers, three separate tracks. So, Esteban, we're pulling you over. You can't pick two Hans Zimmers. You're only allowed Black Hawk Down. And I'm giving you this one because you're proving me and – oh, shoot. Who was that? Uh, Nick D, uh, you're proving two of us right when you're picking uh, the Last of the Mohicans soundtrack by Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman. Ah. Hmm. Took two of them to do that. Took two. Uh, And then he tries to throw in another James Horner. And he throws in a Basil Polidurus. Ah, Polidurus. How do you know who that is? Hunter in October? No, Riddle of Steel Uh. slash Riders of Doom. I don't. Is one of those a movie? See note, Borm- Beaumont. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so anywhere. it... <laughs> See flat, Beaumont. Okay. Keep trying, Kellywine. You'll get there. And See... then, then look up fungible for us. Minus Beaumont. <laughs> Roberto Amorim, uh, the first time participating, uh, he calls his picks fairly predictable. Roberto will be the judge of that. Number three, the main theme for Back to the Future by Alan Silvestri. Hmm. Predictable, mm-hmm. you guys, are not predictable? Um, well, no one picked it, yeah. so that means it's unpredictable. I can't – I can't. it doesn't go into my head, so I don't mm-hmm. know. Ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Go ahead, guys. It's all, it's all fun. It's yeah. all like fun time. Time travel's fun. It's all. Give, give us a little bit of it. Go ahead. <laughs> and I'm always like, here come the Iranian terrorists and they're banned. First of all, they're Libyan. And second of all, that was the soundtrack for Jurassic Park that you hummed. <laughs> but then why'd we invade uh, Iran? I know, right? It was kind of, 
just in case. Things back then were a little messy. Uh, Roberto says the main theme conveys all the energy and drama in the movie. Uh, Cinema Paradiso, the soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. Uh, And then he tries to throw in a runner-up as a close second, but it was already picked by Aaron Kane, and that's the soundtrack for the mission. Oh. Uh, Finally, here we go. Same down. I expected a lot more of this. Roberto chooses John Williams. And he says, let's let's see if he follows through. Roberto says, asking me to pick one track from him is like a father being asked to pick his favorite child. That might be a three-by-three someday. Denise. Uh, He then lists a bunch of them and then finally says the most memorable theme in cinema comes down to – oh, my God, he doesn't pick one. Mm, That's a twist. (sighs) I'm going to – like a Shyamalan. I'm going to unread that. Nope. Roberto's number two is Back to the Future. His number one was uh, Ennio Morricone. He only sent in two. Too bad. So when you unread it, are you reading backwards? Basically, yeah. Okay. This Craig, we've gone back to the beginning of this email. <laughs> That's Jurassic Park. I'm dumb. No, that was Lord of the Rings. Yep, see? No, Requiem. Oh. Okay, hum, hum Jurassic Park. Hum a little of that for us. <laughs> Just did Raiders of the Lost Ark. You're doing it all. No, first Raiders. Okay. <laughs> no, that's the Superman. Yeah, that was the Superman theme. No, oh, Superman's. <laughs> that's the Avengers you just did. Oh, Kelly, one, you're. No, oh, Avengers is all. <laughs> Craig Miller, his uh, he didn't number them, but his third pick, John Williams' Duel of the Fates. <laughs> yeah, that's how that goes. Uh, Howard Shore's MP3s, Tom. <laughs> uh, Howard Shore's Riders of Rohan bit from Lord of the Rings. You Bear... a bit. That's where they stop. Wait a bit, minute. Bit. Yeah, yeah. Riders of Rohan bit. Okay. Was... Craig Miller is trying to pick a TV show. He chooses Bear McCrary, and then he's trying to pick a TV show. And furthermore, he's using a, a Bob Dylan song that Bear McCrary did in a TV show. Is it Rockford Files? Craig Miller, I'm throwing you in prison for life. Well, you know what? You only get 40 years with – who's the guy that's never getting out? Was that Michael Hernandez? That means you're going to live a long time, though. That's good. I forget who I've thrown in prison, but Craig Miller, you're his cellmate for 40 years, and then you get out, but he's in there for life. Don't drop the soap. can't believe isn't, picking a TV show. Isn't Bear McCrary the guy in uh, The Thing? That's Angelo Battle of Montente. <laughs> 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 who's, he, who's he thinking of as Bear McCrary, Kelly Wand? Um, I love when Dingus tries to play with a couple of thing experts like you and I. Nobody knows the thing like you and I, Kelly Wand. Dingus is... That's Dingus, the thing. You're like the little brother who mom says we have to bring along when it comes to watching the thing. Guys. Come along, Roski. Come on, guys. Uh, so Craig Miller... Yeah, D- Bear McCrary. Get that condom off your leg. That's not a toy. Uh, Bear McCrary is like Walking Dead. Like I don't know what movie he's done, movies he's done, but I'm used to seeing his name on uh, TV credits. <laughs> Robert Perry Cruz. So I was hoping right. Dingus, would you read all of Robert? Robert Perry Cruz does no joke. The podcast that inspired this this pick. Dingus, would you tell the listeners about the podcast and read the entirety of his email, every word he's written, because I think it's worth it for him. All right, certainly I'll be happy to. Uh, Robert Perry Cruz does a podcast called. Um, 
they're playing our song. Uh, it's uh, you can find it at playingoursong.net. Uh, and they're playing our song is Robert Perry Cruz podcast where he uh, interviews or sits and talks with uh, one person about one song they really love. They break down that song, talk about it for half an hour, an hour or so, and then they tell you why it should be your song. Um, it's a really, a really great idea. It's just one single song and you break down that song. Um, huh. So uh, that's why I, we kind of let Robert Perry Cruz say, hey, I, I I said you got to pay attention to the three by three this week. It's a really great podcast. By the way, also Roberto uh, Amorim would not get to go on and just say uh, all John Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert, yeah. You can't do that. You pick one song, just like you're supposed to pick one track. Exactly right. <gasps> so uh, so here's what Robert Perry Cruz has to say. Hi guys, I hope I got this in time. Yes, you did. Uh, I mostly took this topic to be what thematic movie music. Have I most consistently loved listening to, and which best exemplifies my memories of the film? So here goes. That's, yeah, that's uh, way too many words, but they work. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I don't think you could fit that in the tweet, though. No, no, and certainly not with hyphenates. All right, number three, John Williams' Yub Nub, Ewok <sighs> Celebration from what? Return of the Jedi. Ding is uh, just delete the email. Just go ahead. Just what hit the it. fuck? <laughs> How's that our song? Oh my god. Not sure if this one will count. No one likes that song. According to George Lucas's special edition remasters, this song no longer exists. While these films have so many iconic pieces, this tribal chanting song written entirely in Iwakese evokes all of the good feelings I go through when I watch the end of the original trilogy. Wait, Uh, first of all, he goes through good feelings, and second of all, Iwakese... That's what he calls it, Iwaki. He watches all, all the whole trilogy the whole time, every time. You're supposed to yeah. turn it off after Empire Strikes Back, duh. You're supposed yeah. to throw away the third one. <laughs> You've got adorable teddy bear creatures, Luke, oh. Han, and Leia, Q, Kelly, oh. Wand, Carrie Fisher impression. Gob, uh. <laughs> gob. Lando and the droids all hugging and smiling at the victory of good over evil. Scored behind them a relatively simple drum and stormtrooper stormtrooper helmet xylophone melody building to the crescendo of a huge chorus leading right into the Star Wars theme. A great blend of visual and audio that leaves the viewer fully jazzed at the experience. The musical equivalent of always leaving your audience wanting more. I find you know, it that he leaves out the floaty blue uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi ghost. And Vader's funeral, which is, that's playing during. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Ew. Oh, they're my God. They're burning him alive. Or they're cremating him. <laughs> He's not alive. <laughs> is, that what, is that what you think cremating is, Kelly Wand? <laughs> is <they> just... <laughs> well, it was House of Usher. The Salem witch trials would be a lot. Different thing. Hey, also, remember in that scene, the Ewoks uh, banging on the xylophone, it's like Stormtrooper helmets on stage. He didn't read that, yeah. Just... But it's like, that means they took that helmet off a corpse. <laughs> They're looting the dead bodies of the Stormtroopers from musical instruments. <laughs> so just pretend the corpse is right behind him when they're playing that music. And the guy's death rictus is like, oh, I've died for nothing. <laughs> or the, it should have just been the guy's head on a stick. Because that's what the Ewoks would do. Aren't they cannibals? They eat each other? No. no. They just eat people. That doesn't make them cannibals. Yeah, yeah, you're not a cannibal if you eat a different species. Like, is, it, is a lion a cannibal, Kelly Wand, if it eats a people, a, a person? It's buried alive. They look like lions. Oh, wait. Leah gives the first Ewok a helmet, and she's all, that's a helmet, you idiot. And then, 
<laughs> later, they use a stormtrooper helmet as a musical instrument. So it's like, is that the moment where they discover music? Is when she hands him the helmet? Tell you what, I would listen to an hour-long podcast every week of you just doing things Princess Leia says to Ewoks. <laughs> You're a stupid little thing, aren't you? <laughs> Princess Leia reads fortune cookies to Ewoks. <laughs> I'm an emissary and a warrior. <laughs> not a Jedi. But I could be if I felt like it. It's not true. Skill sets and cultivating, like keeping these teddy bears my hat. Sorry, what were you saying? Music related things? Star Wars? Jedi? Remember when we all felt exhilarated? Robert Perry Cruz, his next choice. Is uh, Brad Fidel's score the Terminator theme from Terminator 2 Judgment Day? (laughs) (laughs) But we all know what that sounds like. Come on. Yeah, it's an evil robot music. It's something evil robots would listen to, the way ghosts listen to the Shining theme. Can you play uh, musical instruments on an evil robot's head? (laughs) Yeah, uh, liquid metal. I specifically chose the more orchestral version from Terminator 2, though it's technically the same as in the original. From the opening staccato drum beats. <clears throat> Thank you, Kelly. Da 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 is what he wrote. <laughs> to the synth melody. This piece always gets me pumped up. As if, do you think there's a reason he says pumped up? As teutonic, it's, it's a teutonic, yeah. Very teutonic. Of him. Apocalyptic. It pumps him up. As if the theme itself is the marching music of the human resistance. Beginning with the triumphant call to arms, the theme seems to wind down, ending in a minor note that almost makes the whole thing sound slightly unfinished before starting up with the drum beats again. Nothing captures the feeling of a doomed future like those last few hanging notes. Okay, wait a minute. I'm I'm thinking that Robert Perry Cruz might be trolling us, because I always thought that music wasn't like the resistance rising up. It was like the robots... Like marching Killing forward everybody. to conquer people. Right, right. Like it was the massive yeah. the robots. Because the first one's a horror movie. It's like yeah. – Right, right. It's the monster theme, like the Jaws music. It's not like the, – the theme to Jaws doesn't represent people swimming away from a shark and getting out of the water. Yeah, it's remorseless evil that you can't kill chasing you constantly. And it does have that two times. I mean it is, it is very – Yeah. But the, like, the, the other thing, they – do-do-do, do-do-do. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. That's, That's like humans coming, rising up through the uh, robot to talk. Yeah, and rise of the machines. Right. Oof. Wait. All right. Well, let's see if uh, let's see where he goes with his number one pick. We'll right. So Robert Cruz, number one. Michael Giacchino's Ellie's theme from Up. Hmm. I don't. This <clears throat> this piece was first in my mind the instant I heard about the topic. But why is the 2010 Oscar winner for best score so damn good? Giacchino's described the whole piece being built around an F major seventh, a chord that captures the feeling of nostalgia. Ellie's theme comes up a lot throughout the movie. It's a versatile piece of music that sets a perfect mood depending on what tempo it's played at and what instruments are used. That great opening montage demonstrates this with the big band version of the theme underscoring Ellie and Mr. Fredrickson's 
newlywed days before moving into a softer woodwind version to capture their capture their mellower middle-aged years. I personally love how beautiful and simple the theme is when played only with piano. I think most folks would remember this from the end of that montage when Mr. Fredrickson Mr. Fredrickson begins mourning Ellie's passing, but I don't think anything is better than its use at the end of the movie. Picture it. Russell, Doug, and Mr. Fredrickson eating ice cream with a giant Zeppelin overhead. Ellie's theme tinkling quietly on the piano, reminding us now less of what Mr. Fredrickson has lost than what he has gained. Fade to his little house next to Paradise Falls, as those final F major seventh chords play, we instantly feel nostalgia for the lost companions in our own lives, and the nostalgia for this amazing adventure that we, the audience, have just experienced. Gets me weepy every time. Thanks now for see, the joke. This is the sort of thing where I, we should now play it because I don't, I don't know that. Like I know, I know I love the movie, but I can't remember what that music is that he's talking about. And now I want to know. Yeah, me too. I'm with you, Tom. Uh, all right, Chris Markinson, uh, our last one, uh, quarter to three movie podcast, patron saint archivist friend Chris Markinson writes, I'm pretty clueless when it comes to composers outside of Shore, Williams, and Zimmer. <laughs> but I hope those aren't your runners up, Chris Markinson. You're not trying to pull a fast one. But he writes, I found three pieces of music that I really liked, and I've chosen the composers of those pieces. I also made sure the music was specifically from the movie, Kelly Wand, mm-hmm. and not a pop song that the producers licensed, or a piece of classical music such as also Sprach Zarathustra from 2001, Kelly Wand. <laughs> Talons of the Eagle. <laughs> I might have been adding some editorial comment to Markinson's email, but that's pretty much what it says. Wait, Jaws is from the movie? Number three. <laughs> Micah Levi... The track is Creation. Whoa. Oh, my God. Do you guys know? Do you, I, would have had, I would have no idea what this is. Does either of you recognize this yet? Mm, creator, the Peter O'Toole thing. I'm going to cross out where Markinson wrote. I'm pretty clueless when it comes to composers outside of Shore, Williams, and Zimmer. Because anybody can pull this out of a hat. This the composer is okay. – oh, did you have a guess, Dingus? I thought it, it sounded like a Terrence Malick thing, but go ahead. You're kind of close because it's uh it's from the soundtrack for Under the Skin. Uh, the track is called Creation. The composer is Micah Levi. Uh, Levi does an incredible job making the soundtrack to Under the Skin sound alien. My favorite piece of, mu- of music by her – oh, it's a woman uh, – is the first thing you hear in the movie with that wonderfully frantic and discordant music being played. Hmm. Uh, number two, Clint Mansell's track, Welcome to the Lunar Industries from Moon – uh, Chris calls it catchy and a little ominous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the music that starts after the Lunar Industries commercial in Moon. The blending of pia- uh, piano, guitar, and maybe a horn section all merge nicely to make it seem like something just isn't quite right. On the yeah, both of those choices have a good discordant quality to them. I mean, you can – it's weird. I wouldn't have known who that composer was for Under the Skin, but as soon as he mentions it, I imagine that the, that first, like – bit of light in the screen and I can hear that weird music. Yeah. Uh, And here's another good pick. Uh, The composers are Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. The track is called Skin. Does that have any guess what it's from? Boy, no. The other movie? 
the other movie. <laughs> uh, yes, you're correct. Do you know the name of it? Skindy. Uh, after Ava deals with Nathan and talks to Caleb, music wow. begins to play very softly in Ex Machina. The music sounds almost childlike and gets progressively louder as Ava walks into an adjacent room and starts to change. I don't know what the instrument is, but it sounds like a xylophone that chimes during the music. But as Ava's metamorphosis continues, the chimes begin to sound more and more mechanical. The music continues to get louder and faster until it cuts off in time with the elevator door closing on Ava. Ah, it's like awesome. It's, well, I love the, the weird thematic connection he's got with these three. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, runners up will not be allowed. Ha <laughs> ha, psych. Dingus, what is next week's 3x3? Three three? How can the listeners participate? All right, these are your three favorite scenes in hardware stores. <laughs> um, wow, okay. I uh, uh, Okay, I can't say anything, but I want to. And hardware I Wars, a movie. Yep. All right, so we saw a movie uh, a few weeks ago where there was a scene in a hardware store that uh, sparked this. Wait, I, thought you, I thought you were drawing it from today's movie. I was not. I was drawing it from a movie that, oh. that we saw a little while ago. Well, pretend I didn't say that, and I'll maybe bring it up next week. The Equalizer. All right, and if you would like to contribute, this will be much easier, I think, than Tom's awesome topic this week. This is a, this is a softball topic. But one that I'm very happy about. Um, these are your three favorite scenes in hardware stores. If you would like to contribute, please do uh, email us. And you can email us with one pick, two picks, three picks. Um, that's fine. If you only have one, just send it in to 3x3 at quarter3.com. And if you have some ideas for the next movie we're going to see, please send those as well. But please send them as a separate email just in the subject line of your email, say ideas about the movie, and then for the other, say three by three topic, so so that we can separate those two things. And it doesn't have to be exactly that; something along those lines. Right, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. Our secretaries can wade through that stuff pretty. They, they'll parse that for us. Yes. Before they pass it along to us. Uh, Kelly, one. What movie are we seeing next week? Next week, we're seeing Fantastic Four, the dawn of a new uh, franchise. Yeah, we kind of are, aren't we? Ew. Uh, what's yeah, what's the actual title? Dingus, you're the only one who's psyched about this. Uh, what's the title of the movie next week? And I, I hope I hope my lowered expectations will make me enjoy it more. What, what's it Am I Dingus? really the only one who's excited about this? Mm, I think it'll be between Batman vs. Superman and Civil War, which for right. Tom is bad. Bad. Yeah, that's horrible, <laughs> Kelly. Wand. What have you just subjected me to? That's not good for Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that I know at least one person in my life who's very excited about seeing this, and maybe another. So this is X Men Apocalypse. We are seeing X Men colon Apocalypse next week. Uh, uh, I kind of burned out on. Stop all it of with it. the size, you guys. Come on. Thing is, it's just going to make it easier for us to like it. The bar is we. Every time we sigh, it lowers the bar for our enjoyment. You should be What's glad. coming out that's good this summer the again? version of a It's a Wonderful Life quote ever. What am I looking forward to? X-Men Apocalypse. No. <laughs> what this summer? <laughs> Nothing? Uh, well, that- we get to see Nice Guys after X-Men Apocalypse because it opens in Germany. Dingus has already seen it. Dingus, don't say a word. Uh, so, Kelly Wand, you and I will catch up with him, and we'll be doing it after. We'll be doing a little Shane Black after we do our – is it Brian Singer? Did he go back to the X-Men movies? Oh, you know, yeah, we'll he did. Out. Okay. He gave up on Superman, like all of us. 
<laughs> and also one of Kelly's favorite writers. Uh, Kenberg? Oh, yeah. oh, Max. Oh, Max Landis, I thought you were going to say. He's so good. Uh, all right, I am Tom Chick. Thank you guys for joining us this week. I have been joined by Christian Mifliskly. It's Christian Morosky. And we had Kelly Wand. I don't hear any difference. A certain smile A certain face Can lead an unsuspecting heart On a merry chase You've got to be strong to survive You've got to fight to stay alive if, if I can prove to you I'm a psychic, you want to try again tomorrow night? Hmm. I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept Apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the Queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! <laughs> I prefer Carrie Fisher's earlier funnier ones. I would love to explain everything, but we don't have time. Oh. Um. Da, 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 da.